The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Robert Smalls. That is the marvelous man we'll be talking about today. For the first part of this episode, anyway. Robert was a hero of the American Civil War, a Union Navy captain, a politician, and an inspiration to so many. His remarkable story is a lesser-known piece of Civil War history, but that doesn't make it any less inspirational. He was born enslaved in Beaufort, South Carolina, grown up seeing and experiencing the horrors of slavery. As a teenager, he worked on ships in the Charleston Harbor, where he learned to sail and navigate the coast. And that knowledge would change the course of his life drastically. When the Civil War broke out in April of 1861, he was forced to work on the Planner, a steamer that served as a supply ship for the Confederacy. Robert became the ship's wheelman. And a year later, Robert did the unthinkable. He and other fellow enslaved crew members stole the Planner, sailed out of Charleston Harbor, right under the noses of Confederate guards and cannons. Robert brought the Union Navy, ammunition, guns, valuable information. He then became a hero for the Union Army and was influential in recruiting black soldiers for the war effort. Robert went on to become a prominent South Carolina politician, served in the U.S. House of Representatives for multiple terms. He succeeded despite numerous forces against him. Southern Democrats determined to enforce white supremacy, threats from the KKK and other hate groups, and the rise of Jim Crow laws around him following Reconstruction. Robert Smalls valued hard work and determination. He embodied it. He was known for talking about how he never needed any special defenses or exceptions. All he needed was a chance to succeed and succeed he did. Robert lived during one of the most rapidly changing politically and racially tense times in our nation's history, despite so many obstacles set in front of him along his path, despite so many rooting for him to fail or worse, he didn't. He kept his damn head up. He was determined to make his mark on the world, and he sure did. 
I look forward to sharing his tale with you today and also reviewing the past year of the suck and a special year-end inspiring. Keep on trucking because what the hell else are we going to do episode of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday and Happy New Year, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, a suck master, Santa's helper, Lucifina's uh, boudoir photographer, Popcorn Sutton's Appalachian Moonshine distributor, and you are listening to the last Time Suck of 2021. Hail Nimrod, let's party, Lucifina. Come sit by the fire with me on Christmas. Bojangles, let's, uh, you know, uh, hang out, have some treats, let's sing some holiday songs, Michael motherfucking McDonald's. Uh, no announcements today other than... Uh, Sorry, Appalachia, for committing the cardinal sin of not knowing who the fuck Popcorn Sutton was. Whoops. I just thought he was a random dude with a funny name. Did not know he was an Appalachian moonshine bootlegging legend before he passed away. It's R.I.P. Popcorn. I will think of you when drinking powerful whiskey and or when eating popcorn. Uh, now for a special year-end show. I'm very excited. Uh, you know, we got a topic, uh, Robert Smalls, and then a big recap at the end, highlighting some jokes, sharing some thoughts uh, for 2022, expressing a lot of gratitude for 2021. Uh, I know many of you have dealt with a lot of adversity, hard times in 2021. Nearly all of us have been surrounded by a lot of cultural divisiveness uh, since uh, world government started trying to figure out how the hell to deal with COVID. For many of us, the most cultural divisiveness uh, we face in our lifetime, the most fear of, oh shit, well now what? What's next? What's coming around the bend? What bad news am I waking up to tomorrow? But the cultural and political tension we've dealt with pales in comparison to the shit Robert Smalls dealt with. My God. The cultural adversity he encountered is heartbreaking and how much he overcame and how he refused to let being surrounded by so many people who fucking hated him actively work to make his life horrible for him simply because of how he happened to look. Well, it's inspiring. Robert Smalls lived through four distinct periods of American history, four periods when being African-American was incredibly disadvantageous. Smalls was a slave during the slavery period of the pre-war South. He then made it to the North, fought soldiers who wanted to either kill or enslave him once more during the American Civil War. After being on the winning side of that war, he had a promising political career, derailed, ultimately destroyed thanks to the racism of the Reconstruction era. And finally, in his last years, he watched many of the improvements he'd fought so hard for in the battle for equality for black Americans be repealed thanks to the long push for segregation and disenfranchisement during the Jim Crow era but he never let any of that shit break him. In the end, he died in the house he still owned, the home his slave master used to live in, the house he grew up in when he was a slave as a young boy, the one he bought from people that once owned him, or well, actually he didn't buy directly from them, but he, it was the house owned by the people that owned him. He died at the age of 75 after a long and successful life in a structure so symbolic of overcoming adversity. Let's hop in now. Steal some inspiration, some fortitude from this valiant Freedom Fighting Man. Before we dig into the nitty gritty of uh, Robert Small's life, before I give a year-end review of what 2021 was like here at Bad Magic at the end of the suck and, you know, just where my head's at now, I'll, uh, I'll present a brief overview of each of the four periods of history I just mentioned. Robert Small's lived to one of the most rapidly changing and turbulent times in American history. Shit that makes today's cultural turbulence look like fucking nothing. Smalls was born enslaved in the pre-war South, fought during the American Civil War, served in politics for decades afterwards during both the Reconstruction era and also the Jim Crow era. 
Let's kick shit off by looking at the uh, history of slavery in South Carolina, where he's from. Africans were present at the initial founding of this English colony in 1663, one of the original 13 colonies, one of the original five Southern colonies. Uh, it was originally part of the same colonies in North Carolina, two officially partitioned into separate colonies in 1712. Uh, and slavery, real popular in South Carolina, like, like the most popular, per capita-wise, you know, definitely the most popular. Uh, within several decades of its foundings, uh, Africans became a majority of the population there. The first governor, William Sale, brought with him three black slaves from the Caribbean and the state's founding fleet in 1670, another a few months later. Sale, uh, before leading South Carolina's settlement, had been the governor of Bermuda, born in Bermuda, also helped uh, settle the Bahamas, South Carolina, not his first settlement rodeo. South Carolina's fundamental constitutions of 1669 envisioned slavery among other forms of servitude and social hierarchy in the colony. Africans were imported in significant numbers beginning in the 1690s. And by 1715, the black population made up about 60% of the colony's total population. South Carolina was the only colony in English uh, or in English North America where that type of proportion existed. Uh, as in Virginia, Many slaves in the 17th century South Carolina uh, came from the West Indies. They were well-equipped both epidemiologically, I think I actually got that the second time, in terms of resistance to malaria and yellow fever, and pharmacologically, in terms of their ability to make use of native plants to cope with South Carolina's semi-tropical environment. In the early days of Carolina's history, Africans' familiarity with tropical herbs Ability to move along inland waterways using canoes and skill in fishing enabled them to live off the land uh, much more easily than their English masters could. And they also got along better with Native peoples. Like Southeastern Na uh, Native American tribes, the early Africans came from uh, basket weaving traditions, both skilled in the use of small watercraft on inland rivers. Africans uh, were uh, among the first to appropriate Native languages in South Carolina, were often used as translators. These conditions facilitated African adjustment and the appropriation of local skills from natives. Often Africans were the mediators of knowledge between the tribes and the European settlers. And because African men have square-shaped penises and native women have rectangular vaginal canals and native men have square-shaped penises and African women have rectangular vaginal canals and uh, European men and women both have either oval or parallelogram-shaped genitalia, Africans and local natives were especially well-suited sexually, and that helped bring about a lot of goodwill between the two peoples. That made Africans even more desirable to English settlers. And that's where the term fits like a glove comes from. And if anyone just believed that, I am fucking surprised. And thank you, because that was absurd and not even a well-thought-out misdirect. Uh, are you now thinking about how weird it would be if different races had drastically differently uh, shaped genitals? Are, are you picturing different wieners as if they were made by uh, a Play-Doh dispenser? where you push the Play-Doh through different shaped holes in that little plastic rail that comes with, say, a Play-Doh fun factory. Are you, are you thinking about that now? Well, you're not alone. Uh, back to reality, African expertise, as well as rough pioneer conditions of a new settlement, facilitated a degree of sawbuck equality in 17th century South Carolina, a term derived from the image of the slave owner working all day sawing wood with a slave, each facing the opposite, or each facing the other, excuse me, on opposite sides of a sawbuck. Uh, this kind of working together, uh, a relatively benign period of slavery compared to what would come later, was, of course, not to last. And plantation slavery would take over at the dawn of the 18th century in South Carolina. The colony increasingly embraced rice as a staple, and the English colonists benefited from their African slaves' familiarity with the grain, many of whom came from rice-growing regions in Africa, knew more about the cultivation 
of that crop than Englishmen. When buying slaves, Carolinians adopted a preference for people from the rice-producing Senegambia region. And this uh, preference lasted through most of the colonial period. Many Senegambians also worked with cattle and were brought in for their expertise in that area as well. So a lot of cattle grazing and raising was being done in South Carolina. I don't know why that surprised me. I, still, I didn't picture it as cow country. Uh, the practice of free grazing and nighttime penning for cattle protection, along with seasonal burning to freshen pastures, all had West African roots. Historian Peter Wood, noted for his knowledge of the settlement of the original South, suggested uh, that the cowboy, prominently connected with 19th century American West, may well have found its first usage in the U.S. and South Carolina and came from Africa before that. How about that shit? Last week, we learned the banjo came directly from Africa. This week, we're uh, learning that the American cowboy has some African roots. Uh, Most of the people working with cattle in early South Carolina uh, were black, as were most of the state's population in general. As I alluded to earlier, uh, of 17,000 people in South Carolina in 1720, 12,000 were black. By 1740, 15,000 of the 45,000 people in South Carolina were white. In 1765, blacks outnumbered whites by more than two to one, 90,000 to 40,000 almost 70%, 30%. In Charleston, where Smalls would live and work for several years, imported more slaves than any other North American port. To show how important Charleston, South Carolina was to the slave trade, a ban on the slave trade, largely disregarded as it was, uh, would go into effect in 1808. And by then, some 300,000 Africans had been uprooted and pressed into slavery in, uh, in you know the U.S., present-day U.S., and nearly half of them, roughly 150,000 people, had been brought into America through the nation's largest slave port of Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, going back now to the mid-18th century, as the numbers of these imported slaves, uh, you know, Africans increased, so did laws restricting their rights because, you know, whites got more and more nervous. Uh, reacting to the Stono Rebellion of 1739, the largest slave result, revolt in the Southern colonies, in which up to 80 slaves revolted, killed roughly 25 colonists, trying to make it to Spanish Florida where they would be free, uh, the colony in 1740 passed its most comprehensive slave law, which made it illegal for more than seven adult male slaves to travel together, except when in the company of a white person. More laws would follow. Uh, Southern slave owners, you know, feared rebellions more than perhaps anything else around this time. Uh, sadly, no members of that Stono Rebellion ever did make it to Florida. 1740 code was the basis for all slave laws subsequently passed in the colonial and antebellum eras. During the second half of the 18th century, and especially during the revolutionary crisis, racial attitudes in South Carolina would harden. This harsher attitude would be shown in the increasingly restrictive laws passed to regulate the slave and the, and the free black population as well. A free black, free black population, uh, very small, very rare for anybody to be uh, given their freedom, you know, which they would have to have be bought into freedom. Uh, burglary, arson, running away, all now capital offenses punishable by death. Slaves uh, were not to be away from a plantation between sunset and sunrise and at no time without the permission of the master or they could be taken up and brutally whipped. Life was harsh and hard for slaves in South Carolina as it was everywhere in the pre-Civil War South. Imagine that shit. First, imagine that someone else owns you, like literally owns you. Then imagine that you're out and about, you're walking home, you know, you're walking to your master's home, nervous that you're not going to make it there in time. Pick up your pace. Uh, some sweat starts running down your back, you know, more than usual. You're always probably sweating that damp, oppressive, sweltering South Carolina heat. Then sure enough, you know, like it does every day, the sun sets, but you're not home. And after it sets, some mean local bastard, maybe drunk, sees you on the road, yells for you to come on over to their porch. You know, if you don't, they'll do something worse to you. And what they're going to do now, later on, 
What they do, you know, this night with the help of a few others is they tie you up to a tree or to a post and they fucking whip you. And then when you're released and you head home, maybe get whipped again for being out too long. Whipped in a way that tears up your clothes, shreds your skin, but no doctor for you. The gashes slowly heal. Maybe get a bit infected at first before they do. Turn into horrible scars. All for not getting home in time. That's your life. Imagine that as your life right now. Just being fucking grabbed off the street, tied to a tree, and fucking whipped. Nothing's ever going to be perfect in America or anywhere else. And not saying I don't want things to improve in a variety of ways, you know, because I do. I want things to continually improve. But holy shit, things were so much worse back then. Uh, despite the overall horrors of Southern slavery, there was a, a greater sense of community in South Carolina for slaves than in almost any part of uh, North America, any other part. Slaves there could provide each other with moral, spiritual, and sometimes cultural support, more so than in other areas because of, you know, how, how many were concentrated there because of the numbers. As a result of their great numbers, the greatest number of Africanism surviving in British North America can be found in the Carolina region to this day, in the Sea Islands off the coast of South Carolina, Georgia, Florida. One historian suggests that early South Carolina was a effectively bilingual with slaves developing speaking dialects their masters could not understand so they could speak in private. Pidgin English concocted as a means of communication between and among various African ethnic groups became more regularized and evolved into a separate Creole language among Gullah and Geechee speakers along the South Carolina coast. Small spoke Gullah. I'll share more on uh, what that means during the timeline. I found it fascinating. Uh, In addition to having the most slaves, South Carolina also had some unique slave customs. South Carolina, an anomaly uh, with the uh, other continental colonies in British North America, and that it was the only one where slave concubinage was almost instituted in open practice in uh, imitation of English customs in the West Indies. And that means that many male slave owners didn't do much, sometimes nothing at all, when it came to hiding their African-American mistresses. Sexual relations between free white men and enslaved black women uh, were common. This exact combination was uh, found in Robert Small's own parents. White women, black men, however, uh, that combination strictly forbidden. By the end of the 18th century in South Carolina, farming rice, would give way to cotton and the rise of the larger cotton plantations. The mechanics of cotton production, uh, closer to those of tobacco than of rice, cotton production not as labor-intensive as rice production. could be carried out by a man and his family, and this uh, facilitated the spread of slavery by making it more accessible right, to more farmers. Farmers could start off slowly, gradually acquire slaves, and expand cultivation, as opposed to having to have uh, many slaves right away. The expansion of slavery throughout the state led to the full maturity of a slave society in South Carolina. By 1860, 45.8% of white families in the state owned slaves, giving the state one of the highest percentages of slaveholders in the country. During the antebellum era that lasted between the War of 1812 and the Civil War, the majority of slaves lived on plantations claiming more than 20 slaves, while the majority of slaveholders owned far fewer than 20 slaves. Largely concentrated in places such as the rice regions of the Low Country, In the fertile cotton regions, such as the Sumter District, slaves created communities shaped as much by their own interactions as by their relationships with whites. Slave cabins on large plantations, often built in rows, on either side of dirt roads or streets relatively close to the fields, but some distance from the master's houses, this arrangement provided both physical and to some extent psychological distance between masters and slaves, allowing slaves some autonomy once the workday was over, a luxury often denied house servants and those living on small farms. Smalls would experience an interesting type of autonomy and go uh, work various non-plantation jobs, giving a portion of his money, giving most of his money to his master, but also being able to keep some for himself. 
Uh, before the war breakout, he was saving up money to try and buy his wife's freedom, at least entertaining that possibility, as remote as it was. Uh, let's move on now to the Civil War period. The Smalls would, would live through and fight in. Uh, haven't done a suck on the Civil War. We've covered a lot of how that war was fought. Uh, one area we didn't get into much previously uh, was uh, Navy's use in that war, You know, an area that involves Robert Smalls. Before the war, naval battles had been fought using large wooden ships powered by sails filled with cannons. Ships would pummel each other until one or sometimes both were completely destroyed. The invention of the steam engine changed things. Steam-powered ships, first used in Europe in the 1780s, more flexible for travel, a lot faster. Engineers invented new techniques to reinforce the breach of the cannons uh, to make them smaller. They created large charges of gunpowder, bigger projectiles that could travel faster and farther. Weapon makers carved grooves inside cannon barrels, which made the projectiles spin and increased accuracy. They developed new shells that could explode upon impact, sink a ship with one shot. No more just fucking around out in the bay, just constantly blasting cannons at each other for hours. Torpedoes carried bombs that attached and exploded on the holes of enemy ships. Uh, the first steam-powered ship used in battle was the Demogolos, a wooden floating battery, or the Demologos, a wooden floating battery built to defend New York Harbor from the Royal Navy during the War of 1812. Never saw any action. No other ship like her was built. But then decades later, just in time of the Civil War, the ironclad, new type of ship, better type of ship, invented in Europe in 1859. Ironclads were ships plated with iron armor so they could withstand enemy fire. This was incredibly uh, effective for many years. Uh, The first ironclad battle took place in March 1862 at Hampton Roads, Virginia, 400 miles up the Atlantic coast from Charleston, a little over 400 miles. Uh, The ironclad CSS Virginia fought wooden Union warships, sank two of them. Virginia drove the wooden ships away, but then the next day, the ironclad USS Monitor returned and the ships engaged in battle. Two ships circled each other, firing cannonballs that would bounce off each other's iron sides, and they actually uh, just fought to a draw. With a combination of a steam engine and ironclad technology, wooden ships couldn't compete. The ironclad, its successors, became the most formidable weapons of warfare until airplanes were invented and used in World War I. One example of a weapon used during the American Civil War that was more innovative and destructive than anything ever seen before, the ironclad. Uh, The Navy's real importance in the Civil War was regarding supplies, though, not firepower, not as far as, you know, like just a you know, loss of life with the enemy. The primary mission of the Union Navy was, as declared by President Lincoln on April 19th, 1861, to maintain a big blockade of the Confederate ports by restraining blockade runners. The mission would be the, this mission would be the primary mission for the duration of the war for the Navy. And while the Union sea power didn't directly win the war, it did enable the war to be won. By the time of Lee's surrender, Lincoln's Navy outnumbered uh, 626 warships. 65 were ironclads after starting out with uh, only roughly 90 vessels total. The Confederate Navy started out with only 14 seaworthy vessels, ended the war with around 100 total ships, substantially smaller Navy. And this fucked up their whole supply chain. And then and, and their Navy would be made a little bit smaller, the Confederates, by Robert Smalls, who would steal one of their best ships and hand the Union valuable intel along with it that would lead to a swift Confederate defeat back home in South Carolina. From a tiny force of nearly 9,000 seamen in 1861, the Union Navy increased by war's end to about 59,000 sailors, whereas naval appropriations per year leaped from approximately 12 million to around 123 million. And the blockade of about 3,500 miles of Confederate coastline, although that blockade didn't you know, truly become effective uh, before the end of 1863, was a factor of incalculable value in the final defeat of the Davis government. Hard to win a prolonged war if your primary supply chains and income routes have been completely obliterated. 
And they weren't completely obliterated. Some smugglers would get shit in and out, but not like uh, they would have been able to if uh, the ports would have been uh, you know, wide open, not even close. The Civil War started at sea right near where Smalls was enslaved with the Battle of Fort Sumner, an island fortification in the Charleston Harbor, Harbor Robert Smalls was working in. The fort had been constructed in 1829 as a coastal garrison. U.S. Major Robert Anderson occupied the fort in December 1860. That's when he started to occupy it. Uh, after South Carolina's secession, he initiated a standoff with South Carolina militia forces. President Lincoln announced intentions to resupply the fort, and then Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard bombarded the fort on April 12, 1861, which began the Civil War. Totally forgot. First shots of the Civil War fired under the watch of a dude named P.G.T. Beauregard. Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard from St. Bernard Parish, Louisiana. No wonder he went by P.G.T. Those first three, na- three names are fucking mouthful. I am Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard. Easy, buddy. Easy. This is a casual city. Uh, the first battle lasted until April 13th. Shockingly, no one died during the fighting of that battle. Another topic not highlighted much in Civil War history, uh, black soldiers. As soon as news of the first battle of the Civil War spread, black men rushed to enlist in the Union Army and were turned away because of a 1792 law barring black men from serving in the Army. Uh, when one of Lincoln's generals, David Hunter in South Carolina, issued proclamations that emancipated slaves in the state and allowed them to list, enlist in the Union Army, Lincoln forced him to reverse that policy. Uh, by the summer of 1862, enslaved people had escaped to the North in the thousands, still wanting to serve in the Army. The Union, now noticing an increased number of escaped enslaved people wanting to fight, a declining number of white volunteers wanting to do the same, their increased personnel needs led them to pass the July 17, 1862 Second Confiscation and Militia Act, which allowed formerly enslaved men to serve in the Army as laborers or, quote, in such a manner as he may judge best for the public welfare. And this Confiscation Act changed the law that would lead to former slaves becoming free forever. At this point in the war, the emancipation of enslaved African Americans, not one of Lincoln's objectives. But now needing more soldiers, Lincoln came up with a plan to gradually emancipate enslaved people in border states. Abolitionists criticized him for not coming up with a uh, more aggressive plan. In August of 1862, Lincoln wrote an editorial for the Daily National Intelligence that said in part, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. So, I mean, pretty plain speak there. That was not uh, an early objective of the war. Interesting, right? Not, a, not the exact narrative about Lincoln. I remember being taught in school. Uh, Lincoln wrote his first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation on July 22nd, 1862. Now he's, you know, now makes military sense. Now it makes, you know, bringing the uh, country back together sense to have, uh, you know, enslaved African-Americans emancipated. His cabinet helped him uh, work on a plan for emancipation. Secretary of State William William H. Seward told him to wait to announce emancipation until the Union won a significant battle. And that happened on September 17, 1862, when the Union halted the advance of Confederate forces near Sharpsburg, Maryland. On September 22nd, five days later, Lincoln now issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared that on January 1st, 1863, all enslaved people in rebel states would be freed, and that such persons of suitable condition will be received into the armed service of the United States. Freedom of slaves would uh, very possibly not have come about from the Civil War, even with the Union victory, if it hadn't provided the North with a strong advantage, a larger army, army and the depletion of the South's labor force. Uh, Lincoln called on Confederate states now to rejoin the Union within 100 days or their enslaved people would be freed forever. 
And the Confederacy was like, uh, what, are you fucking, what are you fucking talking about? What, what do you, no, fuck, fuck you. Like we're at war with you. We don't give a shit what you say. You know, so they of course did not do that. Uh, and then Lincoln signed the proclamation into law on January 1st, 1863. And because he wasn't actually in charge of Southern states, of course, you know, at the time this was just a symbolic emancipation. But the power of the act would change the history of our country forever when the Union would win the war. After Lincoln issued this proclamation, black men now enlisted in the military in the thousands. Volunteers from South Carolina, Tennessee, Massachusetts filled the first black regiments. Leaders like Frederick Douglass and Robert Smalls encouraged black men to enlist in the hopes they'd be awarded citizenship after the war. In May of 1863, the government established the Bureau of Colored Troops to manage black soldiers. By the end of the war, 180,000 black men roughly would serve in the Union Army. And 19,000 of them, like Robert Smalls, would have served in the Navy. Robert's military service would be uh, just a small part of his remarkable life. Uh, He spent most of his adult life involved in politics. Served in the House of Representatives during Reconstruction, one of the most politically turbulent times in U.S. history. Uh, Reconstruction is regarded as the period following the Civil War from 1865 to 1877. The goal of Reconstruction was to figure out how to reintegrate the Confederate states how to determine the legal status of 4 million newly freed African Americans. Reconstruction defined U.S. uh, citizenship, expanded voting rights, changed the relationship between federal and state governments, and highlighted differences between political and economic democracy. President Andrew Johnson, uh, who succeeded Lincoln following his assassination on April 14th, 1865, just five days after the end of the Civil War, dude didn't even get a fucking week to celebrate that shit. Uh, Johnson wanted to return the South to its antebellum state. But Republicans determined to stop him. They passed laws and amendments to affirm equality between the races, made free blacks full citizens, put laws into place to ensure voting equality, although many states would refuse to follow those laws. Uh, First, Reconstruction, you know, seemed to work. They were making some progress. Black men voted in large numbers, held offices at local and national government levels. In the South, the black community quickly joined with the Republican Party to bring the party to power at a national level. But fucking Andy Johnson sabotaged some shit. That president, uh, Literally never went to school. Did you know that? He never went to school at all. Not kidding. Uh, His wife would teach him rudimentary math skills and how to not read and write like a fucking five-year-old, you know, well into his adult life. Let's let's make that guy president. What could go wrong? Uh, Johnson offered a presidential pardon to all Southern whites, including Confederate leaders, wealthy plantation owners, and then he eventually pardoned most of them too, though. Uh, Johnson restored their political rights, returned uh, all their property except formerly enslaved people. This move would not bode well for former Southern slaves, their slave masters had just been given a slap on the wrist and basically put back in power. Uh, however, black people down South did still hope they could gain true economic independence. Some would. In January of 1865, General Sherman issued Field Order Number 15, which set aside land along South Carolina and Georgia's coasts, where Robert Smalls lived. Uh, set aside that land for black families. The Freedmen's Bureau Act of March 1865 authorized the Bureau to rent or sell that land to formerly enslaved people, but then later in the summer of 1865, fucking Andy Johnson, fucking grade school dropout, I'd call him that, but he never even went to grade school, uh, ordered all land in federal possession to be returned to its owners. Dreams of land ownership were now squashed. Many black people had to return to working on the plantations they used to be enslaved upon for low pay that basically left them as a new type of slave. Uh, Southern states responded to Johnson's plan by immediately establishing black codes, laws requiring black people to sign yearly labor contracts Uh, The codes also heavily restricted their activity. So again, just a new kind of slavery. Uh, A new 13th Amendment prohibited slavery and servitude, except as punishment for crime. And Southern legislators really abused the loophole in this amendment. They they poop-holed that loophole. They passed the black codes to criminalize daily activities, 
so they could imprison black people and basically force them back into slavery. The black codes were first enacted in South Carolina and Mississippi. Black men and women weren't allowed to loiter. Vagrancy was prohibited. Gathering in groups was prohibited and unemployment was a crime. Again, imagine that. Imagine you're born a slave, that you were raised in slavery, that your dream was to one day live free, only be beholden to the same laws everyone else in your society was beholden to, uh, you know, but be able to be able to stay out as long as you want, uh, date who you want, live where you want, work where you can get work as opposed to where you're ordered to work, etc. Then a big ass war breaks out, lasts nearly half a decade. And then the war, when it's won, you're given your freedom. Just, you know, hallelujah. The impossible dream comes true. So many tears of joy. You allow yourself now not just to dream of what you'll do when you're free, but now to plan what you're going to do now that you are free. And then, like, you know, a couple months later, they just fucking take that shit away from you. And you're right back on the plantation, getting whipped, living in fear, all the same shit. These new laws force black people to sign yearly labor contracts, yeah, to avoid arrests. White planners refuse to allow black people to rent or buy land, pay them as little as possible. You know, imprisonment uh, and fines were just a, a way to enforce the black coats. Slapping somebody with a with a fine they couldn't pay, easy way to force somebody right back into indentured servitude. Uh, police officers, they just issue high fines that would take years to pay off. The only alternative to paying the fine was working off the debt, a system called debt peonage. Most of that labor was field work, just a different kind of slavery. You know, again, that's basically plantation slavery. Black children also forced to work. If their parents were deemed unfit, children would be taken into state custody as orphans, forced into unpaid labor. Uh, black people under constant surveillance, even uh, when meeting privately, even when attending church. They needed special passes from white sponsors just to walk around town freely. And if they didn't have a pass, hello, big ass fine. Hello, fucking whip. That's some evil shit. Uh, Northern legislators, legislators angered by these black coats, as they should have been, revoked their support of President Andy Fuckface. President Andy, who probably couldn't spell Andrew Johnson. Uh, The KKK, founded on December 24th, 1865, also a direct reaction to Reconstruction. The group targeted Republicans who supported true emancipation with assassinations and beatings. Also targeted African-Americans who asserted their newfound rights, you know, who stood up for themselves uh, with beatings and murders. KKK started in Pulaski, Pulaski, Tennessee, as a club for Confederate veterans. And it turned into one of the most evil organizations in our nation's history. And, I, and I've said it before, it's, uh, it's been a while, but man, I mean, I know it sounds obvious, but it apparently it's not obvious to some people still. Uh, racism, it's just truly so fucking stupid. Like of all the things to worry about in this life, why worry about that? You know, and it's stupid in all forms, from black to white, from white to black, and every other variation. Seems to generally come from either making huge generalizations, generalizations, you know, based on limited interactions. For example, you know, two people who are blank and those two people are assholes. So now all blank people are assholes or it comes from not understanding where behavioral tendencies originate from. Like if you're in the South in the earlier mid 19th century, uh, you notice that uh, blacks are illiterate at a rate far more often than whites around you. Uh, you could develop racist beliefs thinking that blacks are, uh, you know, genetically inferior to whites when it comes to their intellectual abilities. If you didn't look at the trend more rationally and understand that how could one race be as literate as another? If the one race was literally forbidden from receiving a formal education, a massive education disparity is to blame, not some inherent inferiority based on any racial attribute. But, you know, fucking KKK guys, they're not. They're not having these conversations. Uh, back to the KKK now. In the summer of 1867, local branches uh, met in the general convention to establish what they called the Invisible Empire of the South. And I imagine they did say it kind of like that. The invi- Welcome to the Invisible Empire of the South. We, we will, like our president, never need to read or write. 
And <laughs> I guess you could read it right eventually. Through ignorance, we shall prevail. Uh, members elected Nathaniel Bedford Forrest as the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. He'd been a Confederate general, and one of his nicknames was the Wizard of the Saddle. That's a fucking weird-ass nickname. Not, sound, not sure if that sounded tougher and cooler back in the 1860s. Sounds dumb as shit now. Sounds, sounds like a, a D&D nerd who's also into pony play or something. Oh, hello, ladies. I'm the Wizard in the Saddle. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least at least 10% of black legislators elected during 1867-1868 uh, were victims of KKK violence. Seven were murdered. Black schools and churches also targets because they were symbols of black autonomy. Legislators in Congress not happy with, uh, you know, how presidential reconstruction is going. Uh, during December 1865 Congressional Assembly, radical Republicans, Representative uh, Thaddeus Stevens and Senator Charles Sumner, call for the establishment of new Southern state governments based on equality and universal male suffrage. Moderate Republicans uh, wanted to work with Andy 2 plus 2 is 7 Johnson to modify his current plans, but there was a lot of internal tension. For a time, Congress refused to seat representatives and senators from Southern states. A lot of bickering, a lot of fighting going on. Uh, February of 1866, Congress does pass the Freedmen's Bureau and Civil Rights Bills. Legislation, you know, that would help African-Americans. They extended the life of the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, the Civil Rights Bill made all people born in the U.S. citizens therefore granting everyone legal equality, at least on paper. The Civil Rights Act also gave African-Americans the right to rent their own property, enter contracts, bring cases to court, but only against uh, other African-Americans. How crazy is that shit? You could only bring cases to court against other African-Americans. Your Honor, Jack Johnson stole my horse in front of 15 eyewitnesses. Is that true, Jack? Yes, Your Honor. True as the day is long. Well, I reckon the court finds you guilty of horse theft then, Jack. Uh, but Your Honor, I am white, sir. Oh, yes, yes, you are, Jack. Apologies. I forgot you were merely tan from long summer days. Uh, case dismissed. It's insane. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau established by yeah, Congress, 1865. It provided food, housing, medical treatment, legal assistance, established schools for formerly enslaved black people. Uh, the Bureau was a noble organization, but sadly never able to accomplish many of its goals due to short staffing, lack of budget, intimidation tactics by racists who hated them and what they were doing. Uh, President Dunscap eats shit for breakfast. Johnson did everything he could to do to undermine the Bureau. He pardoned Confederates, fired Bureau employees he believed were too sympathetic to black people uh, before retiring to his chambers to flagellate himself while shouting over and over, and he's a stupid, stupid boy. And he's a stupid boy. That's why I couldn't read. Uh, imagine hearing something like that in the White House. And you open up like a storage closet, find the fucking president whipping himself, crying while yelling shit like that. Makes me very happy to envision Andrew Johnson that way. And Andy's a stupid boy. Uh, there was much internal debate over how much money the Bureau should get, what services they should provide, how long they should receive funding. The Bureau would have 11 districts, uh, almost 900 agents. Bureau agents constantly threatened with violence from the KKK. Although limited, the Bureau would do important work. They provided food, build hospitals, help with contracts, legal disputes, legalized marriages, reunited families, assisted black veterans and more. Also found a few schools and colleges that remain to this day Howard College in Washington, D.C. That was founded by the Bureau. Hampton University in Virginia, also founded by the Bureau. Uh, the Bureau would be dismantled, sadly, in the summer of 1872. Let's refocus now uh, back to February 1866. Andrew used his fingers to count for, those, for his whole life, Johnson. Rejected a civil rights bill on the grounds of states' rights, pre preferential treatment to one group and financial burdens. Uh, but in reality, he just didn't like black people. And he did like wealthy white Southern people who supported him. Congress, not happy. 
In July of 1866, Civil Rights Act becomes the first significant U.S. legislation to ever become a law despite a presidential veto. On July 9th, 1868, two years later, Congress approves the 14th Amendment, which puts birthright citizenship in the Constitution and uh, forbade any states to deprive people of legal protection. This bill considered uh, the most important amendment by many to the Constitution besides the Bill of Rights. And old Andy Halfwit on the wrong side of history on this one. Back in the supply closet, he went when the bill was passed, despite his veto. And he's a stupid, stupid boy! Whip, whip, whip. Uh, this is a huge change. Before this, citizens' rights were decided, uh, you know, state-by-state basis. Now all citizens, for the first time, had federal protection. Again, at least on paper. We've talked about, you know, Trail of Tears and stuff, how this, you know, didn't necessarily apply too well to, uh, you know, Native Americans. And there's a lot of problems with it being enforced. But it's a start. Uh, by 1869, Republicans controlled all three branches of the federal government. Johnson was impeached by the House in February of 1868 for attempting to remove Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, a violation of the Tenure of Office Act, which limits the president's power to remove Congress-approved officials. Uh, The Senate failed to remove Johnson by just one vote. Despite not getting kicked the fuck out, Johnson was done. Republican Ulysses S. Grant would win the 1868 election, and Johnson would spend his post-presidency jerking off stud horses at a horse ranch outside of Lexington. JK, I wish. I, w- I wish he was uh, spent his final years jerking off horses while still yelling, and he's a stupid, stupid boy, as he's jerking off a horse. Uh, he actually would end up becoming a Tennessee senator shortly before his death in 1875 at the age of 66. Dude died of a stroke, or died of a hate stroke, being angry about something. Uh, what did he campaign on? Uh, how much he hated Reconstruction efforts, basically. Yeah. How did he win? Uh, black voter suppression. Uh, February of 1869, Congress passed the 15th Amendment which asserted that a citizen's right to vote would not be denied on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Another victory for black Americans. Also something else that would take decades and decades to actually, you know, be enforced in many parts of America. Uh, By 1870, all former Confederate states were readmitted to the Union, almost all of them dominated by the Republican Party. Black people made up the majority of Republican voters, excuse me, in the South. Uh, Black politicians like Robert Smalls pushed for an end to the racial caste system, economic support for former enslaved people. During Reconstruction, 16 black men served in Congress. Over 600 black men served in state governments and hundreds more in local offices. The transition of black men to positions of power created a lot of tension between Democrats and Republicans. Hiram Revels was the first black man elected to Congress in 1870. Democrats tried to do everything they could to prevent him from taking his seat. Argued he didn't have the nine years of citizenship necessary to become a citizen, referencing the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. What a fucking dick move. The residents argued, yeah, uh, yeah he, was, he was born a free man and born in the U.S. What are you talking about? Uh, Revels was sworn in February 25th, 1870. The New York Times wrote, Mr. Revels showed no embarrassment whatsoever, and his demeanor was as dignified as could be expected under the circumstances. The abuse which had been poured upon him and on his race during the last two days might well have shaken the nerves of anyone. In 1871, President Grant launched a legal and military campaign to destroy the KKK and other hate groups whose violent acts continued. Grant was reelected in 1872, continued his campaign against the KKK. Uh, the federal government passed the KKK Act of 1871, trying to stamp out the hate group, designating certain crimes as federal offenses, such as conspiracies to deprive citizens of the right to hold office, serve on juries, and enjoy protection of the law. Individuals who committed these crimes could be arrested without charges and sent to federal courts. But still, the KKK rose in power. Southern Democrats and the KKK worked tirelessly to reestablish white supremacy in the South. White supremacy would continue to dominate the South throughout the 1870s and beyond. In 1873, depression sent the South into poverty and the political ramifications would massively fuck over Republican efforts towards racial equality. 
Republicans had been in control for almost 10 years now, and poor, struggling people in both the South and the North, they wanted to change. 1874, Democrats won the House for the first time since the Civil War. By 1876, only Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina were Republican-controlled. And then the Compromise of 1877 would mark the end of Reconstruction. 19th President, Republican Rutherford B. Hayes, agreed to end Reconstruction by bringing the blessings of honest and capable local self-government to the South. If Democrats agreed to respect the rights of black citizens and support his very, very narrow electoral victory to become president. And, you know, the Southern, you know, white politicians were like, yeah, yeah, no, totally. Oh, gosh, dang, yeah, of course, we'll respect the rights of black citizens. But they had their fingers crossed behind their backs. After Hayes' inauguration, he ordered federal troops to withdraw from Louisiana, South Carolina. And this ended Reconstruction and officially reinstated Democratic control in the South and doomed a whole bunch of Southern racial equality progress. And brought in a new you know, worse era, the Jim Crow era. Uh, Jim Crow laws, a collection of state and local statutes that would legalize segregation. Jim Crow era lasted for a century from the 1860s till 1968. Uh, really picked up steam when Hayes did what he did in 1877. Jim Crow was an extension of the earlier black codes, right? Those codes that directly followed the Civil War. Former Confederate soldiers had taken jobs throughout Southern legislatures and police forces. They made it impossible to win court cases, heavily enforced unjust Jim Crow laws for black citizens. Upon black citizens, if you broke Jim Crow laws, you were arrested, fined, jailed, or just fucking murdered. Uh, black people who were sentenced to forced labor uh, would receive longer, harsher sentences than like a, you know, a white equivalent of the same crime. Many of them would die in prison. Jim Crow restricted voting, job access, education, these laws varied from state to state. Here's some examples from South Carolina. It shall be unlawful for any white man to intermarry with any woman of either the Indian or Negro races or any mulatto or mestizo or half-breed or for any white woman to intermarry with any person other than a white man or for any mulatto, half-breed, Indian, Negro or mestizo to intermarry with a white woman. I do believe that person probably talked like that. Uh, mestizo, by the way, someone of mixed European and Native American uh, heritage. I had not heard that term before. Uh, businesses also couldn't require whites to share a break room with blacks or bathrooms. Uh, the white man needs to uh, retire to a separate break room to avoid the the ills and evils of congregation with the black man. Some shit. Uh, but, uh, buses and trains had to have separate seating areas for whites and blacks. Certain businesses like circuses randomly. There was a whole fucking circus statute. Had to have separate separate entrances and exits. Or well, when the white man comes to watch the elephants and the clowns and enjoy his uh, salted peanuts, uh, having to sit near a black man uh, really kind of destroys the experience of the circus and harms him in ways that are. I'm sorry. I just listen. I I could try to rationalize. I just don't like it. I just please. I just I don't care for it. Uh, black people maybe weren't enslaved anymore, but they were still restricted in their movement, subject to extreme racism, violence, had few job prospects. They're often forced to work as sharecroppers for low wage to put them in debt for their farming supplies. And they had to give up their crops to the landowners. This kind of debt peonage system, another type of slavery right, continued for decades. Meanwhile, across the South, KKK vandalized, destroyed schools, tortured black citizens, attacked innocent families. After Jim Crow laws put in place, KKK felt like they had fucking carte blanche. Just do what they wanted to do, lynch people, all kinds of shit. Initially, larger cities across the U.S. didn't enforce these Jim Crow laws, at least not strictly. But then in the 1880s, black Americans were flocking to the cities in large numbers to escape the virtual slavery of the rural South. Then, now that the issue is real for them, whites in the cities, you know, both the South and the North, were like, <laughs> you know what? Um, okay, maybe we should enforce. And they started demanding stricter laws to limit African-Americans' abilities to have their kids attend the same schools, buy homes in the same neighborhoods, all kind of heinous shit. 
Everything from theaters, restaurants, waiting rooms, train stations, water fountains, bathrooms, entrances, elevators, cemeteries, fucking cemeteries. Like a matter, Jesus Christ, cashier windows, all segregated. Black people uh, forbidden from living in white neighborhoods, attending white schools, using white phone booths, being treated in white hospitals or some, being incarcerated in white jails, right? Placed in white nursing homes, et cetera. Some states even required separate textbooks. Uh, we cannot have them uh, read the same book and feel as if they may be equal. Uh, Atlanta courts even made black and white people swear on different Bibles so white people wouldn't have to touch the same fucking Bible the black people do. When Jesus walked the earth, what was important to him is that the white and the black man did not cohabitate or touch the same items. It was a part of his vision for heaven. Um, right, you know, that's uh, Jesus loved, Jesus loved prejudice. If, I, if anybody knows anything about Jesus, and knows he hated when people are treated evenly. He loved discrimination. Um, you know, he made that's why he made sure that all his disciples were white. I bet a lot of those Christians back then actually thought that uh, Jesus and disciples were white. Hopefully no one listening now still thinks that. How could you fucking think that now? Dude looked a lot more like a, a member of ISIS than he did a Southern uh, country club guy. So many people's lack of understanding of how fucking geography and race historically converge is mind-boggling. Dude was from Bethlehem in present-day Palestine, not Pennsylvania. Come on. Uh, Interracial cohabitation forbidden. Many smaller towns even posted signs making it clear that black people were not welcome in their town. And Robert Smalls lived through all that nonsense. Lived in South Carolina in the heart of this nonsense during this shit. And accomplished so much in spite of it all. Never let any of it break his indomitable spirit. So let's now examine a timeline of this motherfucker's kick-ass life right after a word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number 
along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, let's hop into that timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. On April 5th, 1839, Robert motherfucking Smalls, born in the slave quarters of a house on 511 Prince Street in Beaufort, South Carolina. Smalls born in uh, Beaufort also would die in Beaufort in the same house he grew up in. That house is uh, still there if you're a history buff. The Robert Smalls House, a National Historic Landmark, uh, and a memorial to Smalls' life stands less than a half mile away in the churchyard of Buford's Tabernacle Baptist Church, where Smalls is buried. Uh, Buford, South Carolina, is situated on Port, on Port Royal, one of South Carolina's uh, beautiful sea islands. Sea Island's a low-lying chain of over 100 islands off the Atlantic uh, Ocean, stretching for 300 miles across South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. Uh, over 30 lay off the coast of South Carolina alone. Uh, the Spaniards first discovered Buford, 1521. The Huguenots tried to settle it in 1562, and the English in 1670, then Scottish Coventers in 1684. Swamps and local tribes made it hard to settle. Uh, the British would build a fort in 1711, and Henry Somerset 
second Duke of Beaufort, founded the town that same year. Uh, incorporated in 1711. That's an old-ass town for America. Beaufort, the second oldest settlement in South Carolina besides nearby Charleston. A gorgeous little town. Got lost in some pictures again this week. So many cute cafes and coffee shops and well-preserved antebellum houses. Uh, st- still creeps up into the into the 60s, you know, in December. A lot of sunshine, ocean inlets all around. What not to like? Uh, people still raise cattle not far from this town. A little bit of farming is done. Nearish, some shrimping, some light manufacturing. Only about 13,000 people in the city limits, but uh, around 200,000 almost in the island's metro area. It looks very peaceful. Uh, it wasn't too peaceful for uh, those who were enslaved there, though. Port Royal Island thrived on a plantation economy with cash crops like indigo, rice, cotton. Island's only 13 miles long, seven miles wide. Uh, Port Royal considered the most economically productive island of all the sea islands. And uh, these islands have had a long, uh, have long had, almost always had, a predominantly black population, one that centuries ago developed very interesting, distinct dialects. One of the most well-known, Gullah. More on that dialect in just a bit. Uh, today, many of the sea islands are uninhabited, but some, like Hilton Head Island, Paris Island, Fort Sumner, Tybee Island, are used for tourism. Uh, some he- heavily become very attractive areas for tourists and for uh, people purchasing second homes. A lot of local concern, actually, that the uh, la- local black population getting pushed out, right? Uh, traditional uh, black settlements uh, being pushed out and replaced by white country clubs. Uh, Paris Island used as a Marine Corps training base. Robert's mother, Lydia Polite, a 43-year-old woman forced to work as a house slave in this area. Lydia never told anyone, not even Robert, who his father was. Uh, Robert was most likely, based on his looks and historical guesses, biracial, black and white, which has led to several theories about who his father could have been. Most popular guess is his father is Henry McKee, enslaver and son of the original plantation owner uh, that is uh, that Smalls would be born on. Another guess is the plantation manager, Patrick Smalls, there was his father. I mean, you know, same same last name. Uh, but we'll get into like how last names don't necessarily work that way in this place at that time. Uh, was his mother a mistress of one of these men? Was she raped? Was she maybe not, you know, violently raped? Maybe she even verbally gave consent. But how much consent can you really give in a slave owner-slave relationship when the punishment for saying no can be far worse than agreeing to the rape? What enormous pressure, you know, placed on black women to pretend to consent. And I'm sure a sizable number of black men also raped. Uh, No stats can ever be gathered to figure out how common this all was, but plenty of individual stories out there in various historical accounts. Uh, Probable father, Henry McKee, 27 years old in 1839 when Robert was born. Uh, Henry himself, known to friends as Sugar Britches, born in 1811, one of 11 children of John and Margaret McKee. His father owned Ashdale Plantation, large sea island cotton plantation on Ladies Island, South Carolina. So many islands, only about a thousand feet of water separated this island from Beaufort on point on Port Royal Island. Uh, John McKee, Sugarbridge's father, inherited the plantation, 10 enslaved people just before the end of the American Revolution. John would go on to enslave 95 people on the plantation on the plantation in total during his lifetime. Ended up owning a mansion within the city of Beaufort as well. His wife, Margaret, founded the Beaufort Female Benevolent Society. It's quite the debutante. Uh, this place provided relief for destitute female children. <laughs> Uh, white children. Come on, let's not, let's go, let's not get crazy. Uh, the McKee family was among uh, Beaufort's elite. John McKee died in 1834. Sugar Britches, his only living son. And he inherited everything, including 61 enslaved people. In 1836, Sugar Britches married Jane Bold, daughter of a wealthy Beaufort couple. They had their first daughter, Eliza Jane, born in 1839 in April. Uh, Henry Sugar Britches McKee's life contrasted starkly with Lydia and Robert's lives. Lydia had been born on the McKee's Ashdale Plantation back in 1796. 
As a young child, she grew up doing chores like gathering firewood and plants. She received minimal clothing and food, corn, molasses, and meat. Her family most likely grew their own food to supplement their diet. They were allowed to keep pigs and chickens so that they could sell meat and eggs to the McKees, their owners, for next to nothing, of course. God, that would be fucking awkward. Hard to negotiate a fair price, right, in a slave-to-master relationship. Uh, how much for a dozen eggs? 25 cents, ma'am. A wonderful, a penny it is then. Thank you, Lydia. Uh, with their meager earnings, the enslaved people at the Ashdale Plantation could purchase clothes and items like coffee, sugar, and tobacco. Lydia, uh, not allowed to read growing up, but her mom did teach her to speak Gullah. Let's talk about Gullah a little bit now. Gullah, an English-based Creole, right, uh, culture and language created by enslaved West Africans in the Sea Islands. Gullah, you know, a word for the island's culture, uh, various ethnicities, West African people forced to develop a common language, also called Gullah, so they could communicate with each other. The Gullah uh, culture emphasizes spiritual, music, storytelling, traditions. Saturday evenings were reserved for celebrating culture during rare social times. Everybody could get together. Very interesting how it sounds. Sometimes also called uh, Geechee or Gullah Geechee. And this is from a YouTube channel, Gullah Grits TV. Gullah Geechee words and phrases and how to use them. This is very cool. Old Moth. Cool you for what ails you. That's to heal. Neither or Nam. Neither or not one. Directly. To come back soon. Barbara Ann. Barbara Ann. Charlie. <laughs> Charlie. Dartha. Dorothy. Couldn't. Cousin. Water. Water. Can own. Doing the most. All right, let's put it all together. Mm-hmm. Child, the other day I had to go to my cousin Barbara and the child in them house. You know where Dartha used to stay. <laughs> I walk in there, you know them chilling. You know how them chilling be can on, so... The little girl done messed around and got sick. She better be glad I had a couple of tablespoons of gas on in my place. I said, oh my, did she all kill you for what ails you? Hmm. Needs a damn one of them one to take it. Uh-uh. I had to walk up out of that. You know, this shit the first time we dealing with Rona. I said, I'll be back directly. They still waiting on me over there. Isn't that, that, that is so interesting to me. That is, um, yeah, that, you know, this dialect was, uh, you know, invented so they could... Uh, speak without the slave masters knowing what they were saying. And it's carried over, you know, to the present day. There's still uh, many people who can speak Gullah. And it's, you know, just a, a version of English with some other words from other cultures thrown in from the Caribbean, the West Indies, some from some African words, you know, mixed in. And when spoken, even if like 80% of the words are uh, slang, you know, like a heavy slang of English, if, if you don't know how to speak Gullah, you're not going to know what's being said. Not exactly. Uh, because of a long period of relative isolation for most whites while working on large plantations in rural areas, the Africans of the Sea Islands, enslaved from a variety of Central and West African ethnic groups, you know, they just developed this distinct culture uh, that has preserved much of their African linguistic and cultural heritage from various peoples. Uh, the total remaining Gullah population around 200,000 today. Uh, when Robert's mom, Lydia, got older, she, forced, uh, she was forced to work in the fields, Sea Island cotton plantations. Uh, they would utilize a task system at this time, which was not implemented everywhere in the South. Uh, each person would have a daily task based on, you know, age and abilities. This allowed enslaved people to have at least some control over their free time. They were able to tend to their own crops and livestock, make clothing, go hunting and fishing, as long as they got their tasks done for the day. Enslaved people on these plantations created an internal economy where they bartered and would sell items to one another. Uh, in 1805, at the age of nine, Lydia was taken from her family to work in the McKee house in Beaufort, though. Margaret and John McKee visited the, their Ashdale plantation for Christmas, Margaret brought oranges for the kids, small gift for each enslaved person, and a yearly allotment of clothes for each person. Uh, the other children hid from Margaret, but Lydia approached her 
Margaret was impressed, decided to bring Lydia back to Buford to work as a house enslaved person. Uh, some reward, Lydia and her mom devastated, obviously didn't want to be separated. Lydia was allowed to return to the plantation on Sundays, but over time, you know, those visits would become fewer and far between, farther between. Uh, Lydia cooked clean, helped raise the McKee children. She was 15 when Sugar Bridges was born, put in charge of caring for him. Possible that Lydia and Sugar Bridges uh, had a close relationship because he likely spent more time with her than his own mother. When Sugar Bridges took over the plantation in 1834, Lydia would move into the slave quarters behind his house. And five years later, she gave birth to Robert. And Sugar Bridges, you know, may have been Robert's father, but some historians doubt this because, you know, Lydia was a maternal figure and they find it pretty creepy. Okay, fair. However, I would argue, uh, you know, stepson having sex with stepmom, uh, porn videos, super popular on porn sites, like that I find to a fucking very creepy level. Vice, Mashable, uh, other sites have reported on this trend for years. The fantasy of having sex with a maternal figure who isn't blood related, uh, you know, it didn't come out of thin air. So who the hell knows? Just because this lady helped raise him doesn't mean he didn't have sex with her. Uh, what I do know is that no one actually did call Henry McKee Sugar Bridges. Um, it's just fun for me to say. Where did Robert's last name come from? Does that indicate father? You know, like there was that guy Smalls that was the manager of the plantation. No, uh, he most likely chose his last name himself when he got older. Maybe he chose it because he thought that guy was his father, but probably not. It was common custom for enslaved people at the time to choose their own last name. Uh, his crewmates on the ship, you know, he'd steal for the Union Army. Uh, they would call him Small or Smalls. Could have been a nickname that became a last name. Uh, in 1862, someone did ask Robert about surnames, you know, for enslaved people in South Carolina. And he told them that enslaved people chose their own names, but would never say that name in front of their enslaver because there was there, it was a way for them to reject the enslaver's claim upon them and, and assert their own identity. So he likely he just, you know, just picked it. Uh, and it has no association with any any people near. Uh, Robert grew up in the McKee house in Buford. Uh, he grew up cleaning Sugar Bridge's boots, carrying logs in for the fire, bringing water in from the well, similar chores. He would accompany Sugar Bridge's on trips to the family plantation in Ashdale nearby. And it is so fun to call him that. Lightens up such a sad, heavy, heavy tale a bit. Uh, Robert played with the McKee children in his free time. Because of this, he received slightly better treatment. Uh, the family favored him above other uh, slaves, so much so that his mom worried he'd reach manhood without grasping the true horrors of the institution into which he was born. Uh, interesting. Wonder how much uh, this influenced how ambitious and daring he later became, right? He spent a lot of time with these white kids, a lot of time really where he truly got to see that they were no better, no different than he. That that knowledge must have done wonders for his confidence, self-esteem, but also been a terrible burden to bear, you know, despite knowing, really, truly knowing they were no better. They were not enslaved like he was. Uh, Robert really did get a unique view of both worlds growing up, that of wealthy white people and that of, you know, enslaved people. Author Kate Lineberry, author of Be Free or Die, a book about Smalls, wrote, no one ever lost sight of the difference in their lives. While the McKee children learned to read and write, Robert tended to their father. While they slept in luxurious rooms in the main house, Robert slept near his mother in the simple slave quarters with only basic furniture and supplies. Lydia taught Robert to speak Gullah there. Uh, he was able to communicate with the enslaved people at his mom's old plantation in Ashdale. You know, even though he never experienced field work himself, uh, because he received preferential treatment, young Robert was able to get away with uh, things like ignoring the city's slave curfew growing up, often stayed out light with white men, something that troubled Lydia. He was given a taste of what freedom looked like, but not given actual freedom that had to fuck with his mind a little bit. To let him know how not free he was and what could happen to him if he uh, kept carrying on like uh, the white men he hung out with, his mom sent Robert to the Buford jail one day to watch a whipping and then sent him to a slave auction. 
This was a big wake-up call for Robert. He was outraged at the indignity of it all. He had been sheltered from this. And then he became defiant and often found himself arrested in local Beaufort jail after this. No sources really say exactly how he showed his defiance, what he got arrested for. Uh, when enslaved people were arrested for breaking curfew, for example, if they weren't taken to jail, they would be delivered to their enslavers for punishment. Robert most often apparently delivered to Henry. Robert said years later during an interview, I've had no trouble with my owner, but I have seen a good deal in traveling around on the plantations. I've seen stocks in which people are confined from 24 to 48 hours. When whipping, a man is tied up to a tree and gets a hundred lashes from a raw hide. A hundred lashes, fucking hundred. And I bet those hundred lashes were delivered with vigor. God, that hurt. Maim you for weeks, if not months. I continued, sometimes a man is taken to a blacksmith shop and an iron of 60 pounds is fastened to his feet so that when it's taken off, he cannot walk for days. I've heard of whipping a woman in the family way by making a hole in the ground for her stomach. My God. My aunt was whipped so many times until she did not have the same skin she was born with. Robert said that enslaved people were punished for the simplest thing if it was not done to suit the owner's notion. Right? They were whipped till the blood came and then washed down with salt and water. Whew. Think about some of the uh, worst serial killers we've covered here on Time Suck in the Past. Right? This same type of person, that same type of person existed back at this time. But I guess, you know, probably didn't often have to roam the country to look for victims. They owned them. And then they just could and did what they wished. Their sadism was legal. God, terrifying thought. Imagine Albert fucking Fish if he was your slave master. Right? No laughing then. Well, Robert, looks like you brought in two logs of firewood when I clearly asked for three. I hope you're thirsty and hungry and you got your fat bottom good and thick enough. Doing no squats like I showed you. Because it's time for whipping. Sipping some hot apple cider and lapping up a little piping hot peanut butter. Albert Fish is a slave master. What a fucking nightmare. Not that he's not inherently a nightmare already. Uh, could, could uh, you know, uh, could have been those equivalents back then. Probably were. Not like anyone had to get a fucking psych eval before they became a slave owner. Uh, 1851, when Robert's 12, he sent to Charleston to work. Henry now sold a house on Prince Street, moved to Bay Street to be with his in-laws. William de Treville, son of a senator, will purchase Robert's boyhood home. Uh, Henry now sent Robert to Charleston, 75 miles. Uh, yeah, from uh, Buford. Yeah, like I said, uh, Henry would receive the majority of Robert's salary when he's working in Charleston. That's interesting, right? You could go work for someone else and then send your money back to your master. When Robert first moved to Charleston, he most likely lived in the slave quarters at the home of Eliza Ancrum, Henry's sister-in-law. Old Sugar Bridges, sister-in-law. Uh, Robert worked many jobs, first as a waiter at the Planters Hotel, gas lamp lighter, Steve Door foreman, sailmaker, then a hack driver and a rigger. Hack driver was a 19th century equivalent to a, to a taxi driver. Just a, a coach instead of a car. By age 19, he had many jobs. Was allowed to keep a dollar a week of his wages, not thinking uh, that probably bought him too much. Pack horse cost about 25 bucks back then. So, you know, buck isn't going to get you a lot. Uh, Robert dreamed of buying his freedom, but that seemed pretty impossible because of the little money he was allowed to keep. Only the South Carolina legislature could free enslaved people, and it would take years of labor to be able to afford it if they did grant him freedom, which was unlikely. The cost to do so could be basically whatever your owner decided, whatever Sugar Bridges wanted. At that time, it could easily cost five, $600 to buy your freedom if your owner allowed it and if the South Carolina legislature said, okay. And he's, you know, keeping a dollar a week. So that shit's not going to happen. Uh, when Robert was a teen, he went to work at the Charleston docks for a while. That uh, was one of his uh, main jobs, a job that would lead him to finding freedom in a different way. He worked first as a Steve Door, which I mentioned earlier, aka longshoreman. And as a Steve Door foreman, right? Loading, unloading cargo, supervising that. 
He would work hoisting horses that would help load and unload vessels as well. His employer was a man named John Simmons. John liked Robert because of his work ethic. And after a year, he put Robert in a rigging loft. In the winter, then he then taught Robert how to make rope lines and sails. And the following summer, he hired him as a sailor on a schooner, learning all kinds of maritime skills that are going to come in real handy. Uh, Robert became an expert navigator along the South Carolina, Georgia, and even Florida coast after this. On December 24th, 1856, now 17 years old, Robert marries Hannah Jones, an enslaved hotel maid who worked in Charleston. Hannah was enslaved to Samuel Kingman, who worked for Planners and Mechanics Bank in Charleston. He purchased Hannah and her three kids a decade earlier, Charlotte, Clara, baby boy named Bostick. Bostick, not documented any records after his birth, likely died in early childhood as so many kids did back then. Hannah was a dozen years older than Robert, described as having a kind face and a strong spirit, showed him the ways of a lady. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, together, Hannah and Robert went on to have a daughter named Elizabeth and a son, Robert Jr. Sadly, Robert Jr. will die of smallpox as a toddler. Man, rough fucking times for parents back then, right? Before vaccines and modern medicine, as much as big pharma can go get fucked in many ways. I mean, they have collectively done a lot of good for the world. Uh, Robert loved Hannah, but he may have gotten married for more practical reasons. Later saying, my idea was to have a wife to prevent me from running around, to have somebody to do for me and to keep for me. Okay, very practical, not necessarily romantic. Uh, sugar britches and to give Robert permission to marry Hannah. And of course he gave it. Then Robert got Kingsman consent, Hannah's owner, by offering to pay him $5 a month. Wow, man, clearly he's uh, being allowed to keep more than a dollar a week now. Uh, both Hannah and Robert's slave uh, enslavers allowed them to then live in a house together. Having a family meant that Robert was not just concerned about himself anymore. His worst fear now was his family being sold to enslavers far from Charleston. That was always possible. Another horror to imagine. Imagine that your partner, that your kids are owned by one person and you're owned by someone else. And at any time, for any reason, either owner can sell you or your family to anyone they please. And there's not a fucking thing you can do about it. Not legally. Uh, Robert asked Kingman family if he could purchase his wife and children's freedom. Uh, this technically was not legal, a slave buying the freedom of other slaves, but it did happen sometimes, very, very rarely. Uh, the Kingman said yes, but they're going to need 800 bucks. Robert, uh, you know, fucking did some math. He's like, God damn it. I have to work for a couple decades to earn that much money uh, and save it. His realization that he would likely never be able to buy either his or his family's freedom and certainly not, uh, you know, all of their freedom would soon fuel a daring escape. The American Civil War begins April 12th, 1861. A few months later, that July, experienced oceanic navigator Robert is hired as a deckhand on the Confederate supply ship, the Planter. Planter was recently uh, converted uh, from being a cotton steamer, now rented out by the Confederate Navy primary job to carry supplies and soldiers between various forts in the Charleston Harbor. Scotsman James Ferguson owned the ship. The craft was new, built in 1860, 147 feet long, made of oak and cedar. The planter was uh, particularly valuable because it could navigate in less than four feet of water, which was necessary with all the hidden sandbars among all the sea islands along the South Carolina coast. Uh, Ferguson originally piloted the ship to transport cotton and passengers from Charleston to Georgetown, then when the war broke out, he leased the ship to Confederates for $125 a day. Oh, fuck yeah. Big money back then. Roughly equivalent to about uh, 2200 a day now. 65000 a month. Not bad for something you're leasing out. Uh, the planner carried supplies, weapons, soldiers, dispatches all around the harbor. Planner also surveyed sandbars, destroyed federal lighthouses, uh, or the federal lighthouse at the uh, Hunting Islands, helped lay torpedoes and some inlets to prevent a Union attack. Then in September of 1861, ship owner Ferguson stepped down and Confederate Captain Charles J. Relea took over. Relea, one of Ferguson's business partners and an experienced boat pilot. 
Robert already knew the harbor well, and uh, his time on the planet only increased his piloting skills. After just two months, he's promoted to wheelman, which really meant pilot. But he wasn't allowed to be called a pilot because at the time, it was not in accordance with coastwise nautical etiquette to call a black man a pilot. All these fucking weird rules people make up to fucking stroke their own goddamn egos. Oh, so he's a pilot. Oh, <laughs> it's a, that's a common mistake. No, he's a, he's a wheelman. He will, you will rouse some feathers if you call that wheelman a pilot. Yeah, but he's fucking, but he's steering the ship. <laughs> I don't, listen here. Listen here, son. You don't understand all ways around here. Okay. He's a wheelman. He is not a pilot. Uh, you, you start calling him a pilot. People are going to think, yeah, you, uh, are quite friendly with the darker sort, which could lead to a serious decrease in social standing, which do have consequence. The fuck is wrong with people? Uh, this promotion to wheelman critical to his escape plans. Over his time on the boat, Robert uh, earned the trust of two groups, the other black crew members, the white officers who ran the ship. All the time he spent with white friends growing up, paying off here. Just after nearby Fort Sumner had fallen to kick off the war, President Lincoln ordered that a blockade was to be placed on all major southern ports, as I had mentioned. And Charleston was one of the largest ports in the South, right? Uh, major supply zone. Blockade, after it was enacted, Charleston still got supplies from blockade runners. People paid to smuggle goods into the harbor and then sneak cotton and rice and shit back out and take it to Europe, but, you know, that was pretty hard to do. A lot of times they get caught. Various railroads would then deliver what supplies they could smuggle in all around the South after their delivery in Charleston. Uh, the Union would call Charleston the rat hole because there were so many channels in and out of the harbor. So it was impossible to stop all the traffic. But the Union got, you know, some. Uh, if the Union had been, uh, you know, uh, too successful, I guess Smalls maybe never could have escaped, right? If they, they were getting all the ships, maybe he could have got his ship. I don't know. Uh, May 13th, 1862, Robert Smalls and a crew of enslaved men decided to try and pull off the unthinkable. They planned to steal the planner in the middle of the night. Oh, I know why I wrote that last note. It's because if they were too successful, they would have sold his ship before he got to fucking smuggle it out of there. Ha-ha! <laughs> Bingo! It's all coming together. Um, yeah, May 13th, 1862. Robert Smalls, crew of enslaved men, tried to pull off the unthinkable. They planned to steal the planner in the middle of the night, sail right out of Charleston Harbor. Not going to be easy, though, of course. Confederates defending Charleston, the water around it, you know, uh, defending various forts, possessing various forts, including Fort Sumner. General Roswell Ripley commanded the CSS planner and all other Confederate ships in the harbor. And the planner was the most valuable war vessel the Confederates had in Charleston. Robert and his crew had one plan, escape or die. If they were caught, they couldn't fight their way out. They were going to commit group suicide so they would not be forced back into slavery. They planned to jump into the water and drown themselves. The Naval Committee report on the escape read, reads, fearful was the venture, but it was made. Uh, Robert's daring escape was not planned in a rush. He spent weeks planning, preparing his crew. Right? Uh, one day, a uh, crew member joked about how much uh, Smalls had looked like Captain Relea. Relea was off the ship at the time. And this is before he started planning. And this uh, crew member pulled out his wide brim hat, placed it on Smalls' head, joked about the resemblance between the two men. This was the first spark, right? Smalls had to start plotting his escape plan. Relay and the white officers would leave the ship most nights. They did this often because they liked to visit their wives and kids in the city, even though this was a direct violation of General Orders Number 5, requiring white officers and crews to stay on board 24-7 if their vessel was docked in the harbor, which the planner was. If Captain Relay got caught for this, you know, he'd face court-martial. Uh, the fact that he kept doing it anyway showed how much he trusted Robert. And lucky for Robert, Relea. Also, yeah, you know, continue to leave his hat in the pilot house when he's off duty. So now Robert plans to steal the ship by impersonating Captain Relea. Robert tells uh, the man he's planning this with to not ever joke about the escape while on the ship. Don't raise any suspicions. He asked them if they were serious to meet at his house so they could really get to planning. Uh, Robert knew that since September 1861, the Union officers creating the port blockade had been uh, accepting escaped enslaved people. 
Most escaped enslaved people had made it to the blockade in canoes. No one had ever stolen a massive ship before. But just a few weeks earlier, a group of 15 enslaved people had seized a barge from the waterfront and rowed that to the Union fleet. That barge belonged to General Ripley, right? Commander of the planner. He was furious that enslaved people had outsmarted him. Smalls knew that his escape would now, uh, you know, be a little harder. And he's going to be looking even more closely. And it was already going to be so hard, you have to pass two forts, Johnson and Sumner, as well as gun batteries, additional ones along the shore and guard ships. The planner made lots of smoke and noise. It'd be impossible to slip away, you know, in silence. He'd have to trick the forts, trick other people thinking into thinking he's on a routine mission. Uh, the main obstacles to his plan seemed overwhelming, right? Making sure none of the three white officers would be on board, uh, avoiding detection from numerous guards along the coast, uh, where the ship was docked, picking up passengers, passing by forts, uh, finally convincing the Union blockade officers not to fucking shoot them out of the water. Uh, Robert normally worked with a crew of 10 men, including three white officers, Captain Charles J. Vallea, First Mate Samuel Smith, Hancock, and Engineer Samuel Z. Pitcher. Uh, the black crew of seven men acted as engineers, deckhands, and in Small's case, wheelmen. John Small, Alfred Gordine, they were, were the engineers. David Jones, Jack Gibbs, Gabriel Turner, Abraham Jackson were deckhands. Three additional men, Abraham Alston, William Morrison, and Samuel Chisholm, also recruited to help their escape plan. Uh, Robert didn't really want to tell any additional people about his plan, but he, he knew he needed a little extra manpower to pull it off. He had to put his trust in his crew, hope they wouldn't say anything. He told them about his escape plans during their meeting in either late April or early May. Three other men, you know, that came that were not, you know, part of the crew were friends and neighbors who had experience in the water. Author Kate Lineberry wrote, their individual decisions could not have been easy. All knew that whatever they decided in that moment would affect the rest of their lives. It was still quite possible that the Confederacy would win the war. If it did, staying behind meant enduring lives of servitude. The promise of freedom was so strong and the thought of remaining in slavery so abhorrent that these considerations ultimately convinced the men to join Smalls. Before the meeting ended, all had agreed to take part in the escape and to be ready to act whenever Smalls decided it was time. Robert decided to tell Hannah his plan, but asked her to tell no one else. She asked what would happen if he got caught, and he simply told her, I shall be shot. If they were caught, all the men would die, and the women and children would likely be whipped and sold. Although she was afraid, Hannah wanted nothing more than freedom for herself and her family. So she agreed to go and told Robert, it is a risk, dear, but you and I and our little ones must be free. I will go for where you die, I will die. Okay, so there was, uh, wasn't just practical, their marriage. A lot of love there. Uh, Elizabeth, just four years old. Poor Robert Jr. would not live much longer. Uh, just a baby. This time, the journey would be difficult with children, but Robert and Hannah could not leave them behind. Robert instructed Hannah to be ready to escape whenever he told her it was time. Hannah was forbidden to tell other women anything until the last possible moment to protect the mission. Just told some friends to get ready. Something's going down. While the crew waited, they uh, worried about deckhand David Jones, Gordine, uh, or I'm sorry, David Jones. Gordine said of Jones, he was given to talk and whenever he got hold of whiskey, he wanted to tell all he knew. Oh, the eternal enemy of the secret plan, the drunken overshare. Jones was losing his nerve and they were scared he'd confess the planned officers. According to Gordine, he was uh, all right at first, but after a few days, he began to weaken and predict disaster and was evidently ready to give the whole thing away. In this emergency, we got at him one night and threatened his life if he did not brace up and thus frightened him into being steadfast. I like how eloquently the, the, you know, they fucking threatened this motherfucker into shutting the fuck up, you know, where they're going to kill him. But they, the way he wrote it, if this emergency, we got at him one night, threatened his life if he did not brace up and thus frightened him into being steadfast. Uh, the crew sp uh, spent two weeks making supply runs all around the harbor. They removed a cannon from Coles Island near the mouth of the Stone River. This is part of the Confederate effort to put their limited supplies in strategic locations. On May 12th, the crew picked up four cannons, 42-pound rifle, smaller guns, 200 pounds of ammo. 
Smalls uh, was loving this as they're, you know, doing this as part of their Confederate duties because he's like, okay, this is going to make uh, the ship more valuable to the Union. going to make me a hero. And then he uh, knew the white officers, you know, we're going to leave again, you know, this night on May 12th. Conveniently, the Confederate guard boat that monitored the entrance of the harbor also had a commission this night. And Robert knew that the next day on May 13th, the Confederates were going to put Charleston under martial law in anticipation of a Union attack. So it was now or never. The plan to return to Charleston docks the afternoon of the 12th, scheduled to go out again in the morning for another supply delivery. So the ship was stocked with, you know, 200 rounds of ammo, 32-round pivot fan, 24-pound howitzer, four other guns, food, whatnot. Small tells his men, it's fucking time. But two immediate problems present themselves. Problem one, Hancock announces uh, that he's now going to sleep on the ship. One of the white crew. Uh, the black crew is surprised. You know, this is not his normal routine, but they can't act suspicious. Smalls tells his men, fuck it, we're still going. According to Gordine, he said he wouldn't give up, saying that he would either lock the mate in the stateroom or kill him. It was finally decided to go ahead, but we had scarcely come to that conclusion when the man went ashore and thus saved his bacon. If he had remained with us, he'd have either been carried out to sea as a captive or thrown overboard as a corpse. I love how this guy writes. Problem two. Deckhands Jones and Gibbs felt the risk was too great and they changed their minds. And now the crew worried that they were going to snitch. Right? They also lost a true, you know, they'd also now lost two crew members, which would make getting the ship to the blockade a bit harder. But they're going anyway. Later that night, Hannah arrives with Elizabeth, Robert Jr. and Clara. Charlotte, Hannah's oldest daughter, chose to stay behind with her family. John Small's wife and daughter joined her. Lavinia Wilson, enslaved to a bank cashier, and Anna White, no information known about her other than her name, also joined this group. Hannah brings them all to the planner, but won't tell them why. Smart, right? The men won't let him leave, uh, even though they needed to be home before the 9 p.m. curfew. Smalls waits until the last minute to reveal his plan. It's too dangerous to let people know too soon. Uh, the women are terrified when they find out. According to Gordine, they cried and prayed and entreated, and if Smalls hadn't had the grit of a bulldog, he would have let, he would have let go. It took an hour to calm those women down. And then we locked them in the, and then we locked them in the staterooms and threatened to kill the first one who made a loud noise. All right, so, you know, they're uh, hysterical. What? But I mean, rightfully so. Worried about getting fucking killed, whipped, you know, uh, separated from the kids, all kinds of stuff. The group then made their final preparations and their emergency plans. If they got caught and weren't killed immediately, right, they're going to jump overboard, drown themselves. At midnight, three of the crew go with the women to the uh, Etowan, a ship tied up at the North Atlantic Wharf. With everything ready, the men have to wait and stew in their anxiety. So I guess they're going to keep some of you know, the women safer now in case something happens. They're trying to get out of the harbor. You know, they won't go down with them. They have them wait until they're, you know, moving a little further away. Uh, they can't leave too early. They got to get to Fort Sumner before first light. They may be stopped. If they're too late, you know, people are going to see a black crew piloting a ship with no white officers, which means certain death. Uh, 2 a.m. Smalls puts Rayla's straw hat on to hide his face and he's going for it. Orders the crew to put up the boiler, hoist the South Carolina and the Confederate flags, get this shit moving. Now they got another problem. Wind, right? The wind is going to blow the smell of smoke into the city and possibly draw attention. There was, a, there was a massive fire in the city five months earlier, so the police were primed to respond to the smell of smoke. The men waited, thinking that they might get, you know, their plan sh- shot down at the last second, but no police ever came. They ease on out of the dock in full view of General Ripley's headquarters. The Chicago Tribune would write of this years later in 1882. The design was hazardous in the extreme. The little boat would have to pass beneath the guns of the batteries in the harbor. Failure in detection would have been certain death. Fearful was the venture, but it was made. The daring resolution had been formed and under command of Robert Smalls, the wheelsman, steam was put on. And with her valuable cargo of guns and ammunition intended for Fort Ripley, a new fortification just constructed in the harbor, about two o'clock in the morning, the planter silently moved off from her dock, steamed up to the North Atlantic Wharf. Smalls blew the first whistle to signal that the ship was preparing for normal duties. 
and they passed without incident. The ship passed a Confederate guard just 50 feet away. A police detective also watched the ship depart. Neither one of them ever raised an alarm. Smalls must have been fucking sweating. Uh, the planner stopped the North Atlantic Wharf to pick up the other passengers. The crew picked up the women and children at this rendezvous point. Now they got 17 passengers, nine men, five women, three kids. Smalls later said the boat moved so slowly up to her place, we did not have to throw a plank or tie a rope. The women and children then went below deck while the men stayed on board. 3.25 a.m. The planter continues on. From his position in the pilot house, Robert blows the ship's whistle while passing Fort Johnson. Fort Johnson had two batteries, three guns each. The crew passes again without incident. They then pass a Confederate boat patrolling the harbor without incident. When they pass the guard boat, Smalls rings for more steam. Gordine later said, we gave it to him down in the engine room, knowing that the crisis had come, but not able to tell just where we were. John and I were alone down there. When the call came for a full head of steam, I was taken so weak that I could hardly stand. And when I looked at John, his face was the color of wood ashes. We were both as scared as rabbits in front of a dog. And it was the same with all others except Robert Smalls. If he lost his nerve for a single minute, no one noticed it. Again, I wish this Gordine guy would have written so much more. Uh, the planner then passed an anchored gunboat. Smalls saluted the boat with a the whistle. They then passed a brig with two barges. Smalls actually shouted a greeting to the brig's pilot. He was good, smooth. Wonder if being out there around all that salt water caused this guy Steele's balls to ever rust. God, this guy had fucking big balls. 4.15 a.m., the planner approaches Fort Sumner. The most fearful part of the journey. The Confederates had constructed a log boom across the channel, left a gap to allow blockade runners through, though. Any vessel passing through had to pass under the fort's cannon. Smalls pulled the whistle cord for the correct signal, two long pulls and a jerk, even folded his arms to mimic Captain Relea. The sentinel on the parapet called for the corporal guard, reported the guard boat going out. The soldier didn't realize that the guard boat was out of commission and the planner was not the guard, bo guard boat. Crew member Gordine said, when we drew near the fort, every man but Robert Smalls felt his knees given way and the women began crying and praying. The sentry guarding the fort yelled, blow the damn Yankees to hell or bring one of them in. And Robert responded, aye, aye. Holy shit, how much sweat was dripping down the crack of his ass at that point? Uh, just as the group passed Fort Sumner, Captain Relay arrived for duty, finds his fucking ship missing. Uh-oh. Uh, instead of sounding an alarm because he would get in serious trouble if he couldn't find it, uh, he asked around the harbor. <laughs> have, you, have you seen a giant fucking ship? <laughs> I can't remember where I listed. You know, sometimes I lose my keys. Sometimes I lose my whole fucking ship. Uh, the Confederate guards at the, you know, fort noticed uh, that, you know, Planter was heading straight for the Union blockade. They tried to signal the troops on Morris Island now, but the ship was out of firing range. The alarm sounded just after the ship passed out of range, right? They're just fucking catching so many bricks. Now the ship is heading straight for the Union blockade. Smalls orders the crew to replace the flags with a white bedsheet. Brought aboard by Hannah. According to Gordine again, for a half an hour, we expected to hear the boom of a big gun at any instant. And when we finally got out of range and realized we'd actually escaped, there was more weeping and praying and singing of hallelujah songs. The planner first encountered the USS Onward at the head of the blockade. And the ship's crew almost then, uh, you know, uh, gets, uh, gets killed. The uh, Onward's crew almost fires on the planner. But Robert's crew, you know, they had that white sheet out, you know, in time to signal their surrender. So many close calls. Uh, acting Volunteer Lieutenant J. Frederick Nichols, the USS Onward, actually ordered his sailors to open her ports and fire due to a little miscommunication in the final moments of the impossible escape. But the rising sun would save the planner because before firing, you know, they were, they were able to see that sheet. Uh, the Chicago Tribune would report in 1882 again. In the misty morning, a frigate was described off the bar. The planner approached her. In the mist, the white flag was not seen. And to the terror and surprise of the planter's crew, the strange ship, Hove round and presented her broadside and opened her ports. 
One of the officers on the quarter deck discerned the flag of truce. The vessels are now within hailing distance, and the captain of the Union ship asked what boat that was and what she wanted. The reply was given, and the planter's errand explained. The captain ordered her to come alongside, but his order was not heard by Smalls and his men, who proceeded to go around the stern of the ship when they were brought to a standstill by the captain's thundering tones as he called out, Stop or I will blow you out of the water! An eyewitness later recounted, just as number three port gun was being elevated, someone cried out, I see something that looks like a white flag! And true enough, there was something flying on the steamer that would have been white by application of soap and water. As she neared us, we looked in vain for the face of a white man. When they discovered that we would not fire on them, there was a rush of contrabands out on her deck, some dancing, some singing, whistling, jumping. Others stood looking towards Fort Sumner and muttering all sorts of maledictions against it and the heart of the South, generally. As the steamer came near and under the stern of the onward, one of the colored men stepped forward and taking off his hat, shouted, Good morning, sir! I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. What a fucking great moment. Smalls brought guns, ammo, and important documents, shipping routes, signaling, mine locations, docking and departure times at quite the bounty. His info led directly to the capture of Coles Island just a week after his escape. Lieutenant Nichols now transferred the planner to his commander, Captain E.G. Parrott of the USS Augusta. Parrott forwarded the ship to Flag Officer Samuel Francis DuPont at Port Royal with a letter describing Smalls as very intelligent contraband. Contraband was just one of their terms for African-Americans. DuPont was impressed by the story, wrote to the Navy secretary in Washington that Robert was a bad motherfucker who had just done the Union a huge solid. Robert's daring escape reported in papers around the Union, making him a national phenomenon. He became a war hero in the North, enemy in the South. The Confederates issued a $2,000 reward for his capture. And Robert's escape greatly encouraged President Lincoln to now allow free black men to serve in the Union Army. Smalls personally met with Secretary of War Edwin Stanton and President Lincoln, to convince him to enlist black soldiers, and he did convince him. He personally delivered orders from the Secretary of War to a brigadier general authorizing the very first regiment of black soldiers to serve in the Union Army. Hail fucking Nimrod and hail Robert Smalls. He done did it. On May 30th, 1862, Congress passed a private bill authorizing the Navy to appraise the planner and award Smalls and the crew half the proceeds for rescuing the ship from the Confederates. Congress awarded Smalls $1,500, which was actually way less than half. This will come up later. He'll... He'll kind of uh, sue them many years later to get more of the money. So uh, symbolically a nice move, but also kind of a shitty move because they actually did not give him uh, half the proceeds. Uh, he then went on a speaking tour across the country to talk about his escape and recruit black soldiers for the army. He claimed to have recruited up to 5,000 soldiers himself. And then he went to fight in the war himself, joined the Navy. But despite his daring escape, he initially not allowed to pilot a ship, not officially. According to the uh, Chicago Tribune again, it was found that although the services of Smalls would be invaluable as a pilot, yet that he could not receive pay as such, there being some regulation in the service requiring these officers to have been graduates of some naval school. Smalls received a commission as second lieutenant of Company B, though. 33rd Regiment, United States Colored Troops. And he went on to conduct 17 missions in the Charleston area. In June of 1862, Smalls traveled to South Carolina's Edesto Island to join Union Captain Ryan and his gunboats. He piloted the planner and Ryan's gunboat, the Crusader, up to Simmons Bluff on Wadmala Sound, just outside of Charleston, Smalls now fought directly against Confederate ships, possibly crewed by men from the area that he may have went out drinking with growing up and helped drive the Confederates out of the area. Nice! How good most of that shit felt. Uh, Smalls continued piloting, acting as a blockading pilot between Charleston and Beaufort. He went up and down coastal rivers, identifying, removing torpedoes that had been planted much like, you know, mines. Sounds, uh, sounds terrible. On October 2nd, 1862, Smalls, DuPont, and his crew attended a public reception in New York. Uh, the New York Times published an article about the reception saying Robert Smalls entered the house and was received with deafening cheers. 
A few minutes later, he was presented on behalf of the black community with a very handsome gold medal executed by Ball and Black with the following inscription. Presented to Robert Smalls by the colored citizens of New York, October 2nd, 1862, as a token of regard for his heroism, his love of liberty, and his patriotism. Well, hail Nimrod. In April 1863, Robert piloted another Union ship, the Keokuk, in the Battle of Fort Sumner and the attack at Folly Island Creek. Keokuk took several hits, eventually sank after the battle. Well, more than several. In the attack, the Keokuk was struck 96 times. <laughs> Goddamn. Uh, 19 shots passed through her. She retired from the engagement only to sink the next morning near Lighthouse Inlet. Smalls left her uh, just before she went down, was taken on board Ironsides. Man, dude stayed with that ship right up until it went under. Dude was on that ship as he got hit fucking 96 times. So it sounds like he was the boat pilot equivalent of like Han Solo. Had some skills. Could do a lot with the damaged craft. Uh, during the attack on Fallen Island Creek, Captain Nicholson piloted the planter. Confederate batteries fired at the ship. Uh, Nicholson became demoralized, left the pilot house at some point, and then Smalls, who was now on deck, saw the empty pilot house, assumed control of the ship, and sailed it to safety. And he was rewarded for his service by being given full command of the planter later that year. This made him the first black man to become a true captain of a vessel in U.S. service. He earned a salary now of $150 a month, which made him one of the highest-paid black soldiers of the war. Smalls continued piloting the planter for the rest of the war. Right, The ship served admirably as a Union supply boat. On December 30th, 1864, while awaiting repairs to the planter in Philadelphia, despite being a goddamn war hero, Robert is removed from an all-white streetcar. Slavery didn't exist up north, but segregation sure as fuck did. In the following months, he would lead one of the first mass boycotts of segregated public transportation. I imagine forming some political ideals as well. His work paid off a few years later in 1867, uh, when a city law would finally integrate the streetcars there. Uh, the Civil War ends April 9th, 1865, starting a new chapter in Robert Small's life. After the war, he's uh, awarded in a ceremony aboard the planter in the same harbor where he'd escaped nearly three years earlier. How good that must have felt. Hometown boy makes good. Also, how many of the white people back home must have fucking hated him? Considered him a traitor. What a strange homecoming that must have been. But also, you know, fuck any people not happy for him winning the freedom of himself, his family, and everyone in the area that shared his race. Wonder how old uh, Sugar Bridges felt about it all. Uh, after the war, Smalls now commissioned as a brigadier general in the new South Carolina militia. And this had to have felt so good, now he purchases his former enslaver's home in Beaufort. The home Sugar Britches had sold to William de Triffle, that senator's son. After buying the home, he also took in some of the McKee family who are financially destitute now after the war. How, how cool is that of him? Also, how awkward was that for, you know, the McKees? I wonder if the McKees ever forgot how the tides had turned on their fate. Maybe sometimes fell into old habits, said awkward shit. Robert, fetch me some firewood at once. Uh, excuse me? I said, fetch me some firewood before I have you whipped. Motherfucker, I own this house now. Say whip again. You'll be sleeping in the goddamn swamp tonight. Uh, De Treville fled Beaufort after the war, which opened up the house for Robert Smalls. Hadn't paid his taxes. Now Robert's able to buy it. De Treville would later sue Smalls, claiming the tax sale was invalid, and the case would go all the way to the Supreme Court. And in 1878, the court would uphold Smalls' title. Him being a war hero, no doubt, helped him there. And that ruling would help many other black people keep their homes after the war. 1867, uh, Robert opens a general store, a school for black children, and founds a newspaper in Beaufort. Hot damn, I like this guy. War hero with empathy, taking some people who used to own him and now giving back to the community. 28 now, he spends a great deal of time educating himself, reading, writing, studying the government, shit he never had uh, the opportunity to do before. He runs the Freedman's Cheap Store with Richard Gleaves, one of his mentors. Gleaves going to become Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, highest office ever held by a black man in state history. 
Smalls also became one of the founders of the Enterprise Railroad Company of Charleston, soon held interest in the Beaufort Railroad Company and Beaufort Manufacturing Improvement Company, also purchases, ho- also purchases houses and land around Beaufort. Dude was a fucking mover and a shaker, making power moves. Smalls made enough money to send his daughters to the best schools, accepting black students in the country. Gave them a childhood he had previously never imagined possible for them. And then he uh, also goes into politics. First serves as a delegate to South Carolina's Constitutional Convention. Then he's elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives and the State Senate. Between 1874 and 1887, he would serve five terms in the U.S. House of Representatives as a member of the Republican Party. Uh, Robert represented the South Carolina district called Black Paradise because of all the political opportunities there for black men. He was the most popular candidate of the area, largely because he spoke Gullah. Uh, And did you know that in the mid-90s, so random, Nickelodeon had a kid show based on Gullah culture called Gullah Gullah Island. No idea. Would never have known about it if not for this episode. I want to play a little bit of the theme song. Hey there. Gullah Gullah. Gullah Gullah. And let's play together in the bright sunny weather. Let's all go to Gullah Gullah Island. Gullah Gullah. Catch you. You get it. That's fun. I had no idea. Ran on Nickelodeon for several years. Nick Jr., I think, specifically. Uh, Democrats called Smalls a blemish. I'm sure a lot of other words, uh, way fucking worse than that one. And he made many attempts and made many attempts to remove him from the House of Representatives. Uh, from 1868 to 1870, he would serve in the South Carolina House of Representatives, you know, the state house. From 1870 to 1874, he served in the state Senate, where he would act as chair of the printing committee. Uh, after this, Robert would serve three non-consecutive terms in the U.S. House of Representatives in D.C., 1875 to 1879, 1882 to 1883, 1884 to 1887. Uh, his most outstanding action was supporting a bill that required equal accommodations for both races on interstate conveyances. How sad he had to fight to have additional accommodations for black Americans, right? That fighting to stay in the same accommodations, oh, that was uh, completely unreasonable. That is clearly out of the question. You're out of order. Uh, In 1874, due to redistricting, Robert has the opportunity to run for the House of Representatives for the first time. Uh, Southeastern District of South Carolina, uh, with a major, uh, you know, majority black constituency, 68%. He beats independent nominee J.P.M. Epping, a white man who ran on a reform platform opposing the Republican state government. And Robert wins uh, roughly 80% of the district's votes. Landslide victory. Uh, He's the second black Republican to be admitted to Congress by unseating a white Democrat. The first, uh, John R. Lynch from Mississippi. May have to suck that interesting dude one day. Uh, Congressman in the 1870s, again in the 1880s, then becomes a a lawyer in his late 40s, then just before the turn of the century in his 50s, embarks on a military career that will last over 10 years and take him all the way to the Philippines. Becomes a major, ends up getting buried in Arlington National Cemetery, lived until the age of 92. Smart, interesting, tough dude. Uh, back to Smalls from 1875 to 1877. He serves as uh, first term as member of the 44th Congress. During his first year, he earns a position on the Agriculture Committee, obtains appropriations to improve the Port Royal Harbor, uh, seeks federal compensation for the government's use of the Citadel, Charleston's Military Academy. In June 1876, he attempts to add an anti-discrimination amendment to an army reorganization bill that required uh, the race no longer affect a soldier's placement. It didn't take, but he fucking tried. July of 1876, Smalls addressed a bill to redeploy federal troops stationed along the Mexico-Texas border, South Carolina. He didn't want to relocate the federal troops already stationed in South Carolina, 
because private red shirt, uh, private red shirt militias, a South Carolina white supremacist group, would then wage war on the government and free blacks. Smalls argued that moving more federal soldiers to the state would cut off that rotten part, excuse me, cut off that rotten part all around South Carolina so as to let the core stand. It is those rotten parts which are troubling us. We are getting along all right ourselves. He was never intimidated by those assholes. Kept cool and rational. Sought the best plan to reduce their ignorant power. Uh, During his 1876 election campaign, Smalls toured the state with Republican Governor Daniel Chamberlain. And he once attended a rally in Edgefield, South Carolina. And at the rally, red shirt leader and former Confederate General Matthew Butler took over the meeting and threatened Smalls. And Smalls was not intimidated. Smalls' opponent, Democrat George D. Tillman, made things worse. The New York Times called Tillman a Democratic tiger, violent in his treatment of Republicans, incendiary in his language, and advising all sorts of illegal measures to restrain Republicans from voting. That's a very nice, you know, kind of formal way of saying this guy is a complete piece of shit. Smalls did not back down, publicly called Tillman the personification of red shirt democracy and the arch enemy of my race. Yep, that racist fuck needs to die. That's what I took for that. Uh, and then Smalls won the uh, fucking 1876 election. Luckily, the governor uh, stationed federal soldiers around local polling places so that red shirts weren't allowed to intimidate voters. Uh, the piece of shit Tillman contested the military presence, hoped the Democrat-dominated Congress would rule in his favor. Smalls defended himself in the final session of the 44th Congress, describing South Carolina's election day as a carnival of bloodshed and violence due to Democratic intimidation. Uh, George D. Tillman really was uh, uh, George D. Tillman really was a fucking prick. He was, he was actually a big buddy not kidding, of the dipshit President Andrew. Uh, Help me, mama, for I can't read. Johnson. Uh, from 1877 to 1879, Robert would serve as a member of the 45th Congress, take a position on the committee of the militia. Uh, but then, being a black politician in the South, catches up with him in a bad way. October 5th, 1877, Smalls arrested in Buford on bullshit, trumped up bribery charges. Accused of accepting a $5,000 bribe while working in the state Senate. Uh, on October 6th, Smalls arrives in Columbia, South Carolina to face these charges of bribery. On October 7th, he's released on $5,000 bail pending trial. Then on November 26th, he's convicted of accepting a bribe and sentenced to three years prison with hard labor. Robert, not the only man convicted that day, Francis L. Cardozo, ex-state treasurer, L. Cass Carpenter, former proprietor of newspapers, uh, published at the state capitol, also convicted. Cardozo sentenced to two years, a $4,000 fine. Carpenter sentenced to two years and a $1,000 fine, two years in jail. Uh, many believe this case, yeah, against Robert, totally politically motivated, very likely politically motivated. I mean, 99.9%, sure. Republicans outraged newspapers blame Democrats for targeting Smalls because he's a successful black politician and businessman. They want him out of the house. On November 29th, 1877, Robert released from jail on a $10,000 bail pending his appeal with South Carolina's Supreme Court, returns to Washington to face Tillman's election challenge before the Democrat Majority Committee on Elections. The Committee of White Democrats ruled in Tillman's favor, who was a white Democrat. What are the odds of that? On June 20th, 1878, just before the end of the second session, Robert keeps his seat because the entire House of Representatives never considered the findings of the election. Right? This was uh, considered an important symbolic victory for Republicans uh, because Robert spent so much time fighting the bribery allegations, wasn't able to accomplish much legislation that term. Uh, during the 1878 election, Small's appeal, still unresolved, His chances of winning this year are slim. Tillman launches a smear campaign against him based on the bribery conviction. Uh, Black people also scared to vote because of threats from white supremacists in the area. Tillman wins 71% of the votes. Then worse news. December 1878, the state Supreme Court affirms Robert's conviction. Right, He appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court now. 1879, over a year after being charged, Robert's conviction is resolved. 
So, okay. So got, got, got through uh, all of that. Robert's case, uh, yeah, taken it by the House, referred to the Judiciary Committee, and they ruled in a lot of old-timey legal speak that the charges were fucking bullshit. Don't even worry about it. April 29th, to put an exclamation point on his innocence. I know, so many trials, so many hearings. The 1879 Democratic South Carolina Governor William Simpson pardoned Smalls, right? Let's put all this shit fucking behind us. Uh, sea Island Observer Laura Town would write about what happened to Smalls this time in her diary. Robert S. is very cheerful and says that the outrageous bulldozing and cheating in his last election is the best thing that could have happened for the Republican Party, for it has been so barefaced and open that it cannot be denied. Smalls, Smalls knew he was still popular among Buford's Republicans and hoped to get his seat back. 1880, campaigns for another term in the House. It was difficult at the time for him to get black voters on his side, though, because fears of returning to slavery are fading. Black voters, uh, primary reason for aligning with the Republicans thus far, and many are unhappy with some recent Republican corruption scandals. State's party's in chaos because the South Carolina Republican Convention uh, couldn't even nominate a state ticket. A local journalist wrote Small's attachment to the disorganized and disgraced state party proved to be the strongest point of attack for Democratic opponents. And he loses the election, only gets 40% of the votes. Uh, then calls for a hearing, though, before the Republican majority 47th Congress. On July 18th, 1882, he appears before the Committee on Elections. He wins the committee's support by testifying that his supporters have been scared away from the polls. Right again. And he's right. And the House knows it. And they seat Smalls. Another victory. Now he gets back to his positions on agriculture and militia committees. It was the same situation as last time. He didn't have much time to legislate because of a contested election. But then during the next election, the Democrats gerrymander the state so that only one district would be likely to elect a black candidate. This district contained one-fourth of the state's black population. And Robert was now running against two men, black politician Samuel Lee, friend and ally, uh, and Representative Edmund Mackey. Smalls deferred to Mackey to present an image of party unity. Shortly thereafter, in 1883, Robert's wife, Hannah, dies unexpectedly. Following her death, he runs again. Right? He just never stops. Now wins again, 1854-1885. He serves as a member of the 48th Congress. Uh, he only ran because on January 28th, Edward Mackey died unexpectedly just after winning against Samuel Lee. Lee had already taken a federal patronage position in Alabama. Smalls wins in a special election without opposition. March 31st, 1884, he takes office for the 48th Congress. Uh, he proposes federal debt relief for South Carolinians. Lost their property uh, due to non-payment of war taxes. But the House rejects this proposal. He then works on an amendment to a bill regulating the manufacture and sale of liquor in Washington, D.C. Offers an amendment that would integrate restaurants in D.C. After much debate, it's added to the bill. The bill passes in the House, but the Senate rejects it. Again, he's, he's trying. In December of 1884, a coalition of black state senators in South Carolina nominates Smalls for a seat in the Senate. But it's not meant to be. And he loses 31 to 3 to Democratic Governor Wade Hampton. So now he campaigns again for the House and wins again in the 1884 election against Democrat William Elliott. Uh, wins in a state really settling into some Jim Crow shit now. From 1885 to 1887, he'll serve as a member of the 49th Congress. Uh, Smalls asked Congress to approve a $50 a month pension for Maria Hunter at this time, widow of General David Hunter, one of the first white commanders in the Union to raise uh, black regiments in the war to lead them. Uh, Hunter also issued an order to uh, free enslaved people in Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Democrats opposed Smalls' request, though, because of Hunter's slash and burn strategy in the Shenandoah Valley and for his lack of support of defendants' rights in the trial of the conspirators in President Lincoln's assassination. Oh, boy. Smalls gave an impassioned speech to the House. Can it be that there is a secret or sinister motive, either personal or political? Can it be that this is your revenge for all of his patriotic conduct? Yep, just called him out. You pieces of shit, you fucking lost the war and you're pissed about it and now you're not gonna do the right thing. 
Uh, the bill passes in the House and Senate, but President Grover Cleveland vetoes it now. Says the case should have been handled by the Pension Bureau. Weak, Grover. I bet he vote- vetoed it because he was uh, worried about the optics of how it would look with his constituents if he didn't. Same old shit that happens today. Uh, Robert also proposes a bill that allows the redemption of school farmlands outside Beaufort that are owned by the federal government. Uh, he submits a resolution requesting relief funds after an 1886 flood destroys crops and homes in the district. The House refuses, though, to provide those funds. Hard times uh, being a politician. Uh, then during the 1886 election, he faces opposition from a black politician, Henry Thompson. He will lose and his career in D.C. is finally over. But not done with government work quite yet. Between 1889 and 1913, he'll serve as a U.S. Customs Collector back in Beaufort. Serves two non-consecutive terms from 1889 to 19, 1892 and 1899 to 1913. Appointed to the position by Republican President Benjamin Harrison. Held his post until Republicans lost the White House. Then returns when uh, Republican William McKinley takes back the White House. Uh, and then Smalls leaves his post in 1913 when Democrats take over the government yet again. And then uh, uh, backing up a little bit here. Um, before uh, 1890, in the age of 50, at the age of 51, Robert remarried to Annie Wick, 34-year-old teacher from Charleston. And they would have a son together named William Robert, born in 1892. Uh, before he took that U.S. Customs collector job in uh, Beaufort, uh, Robert had been offered a U.S. Army Colonel's commission in the Spanish-American War and the post of U.S. Minister to Liberia, but he declined both job offers to stay with Annie in Beaufort and their and their son. Uh, also, uh, you know, before he retires from government service in 1895, Robert had delivered a speech before the South Carolina Constitutional, Constitutional excuse me, Convention to prevent the disenfranchisement of black people, where he gave a now famous quote, my race needs no special defense for the past history of them in this country proves them to be equal to any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Yep. Uh, 1895, uh, Robert's second wife, Annie would die unexpectedly. Rather than wallow in despair, that tough son of a bitch kept fighting for what was fair, what he'd done his whole life. The following year in 1896, he went before Congress to try and get that full money for his actions during the war, that prize money. But they didn't pay him enough for that ship he brought to them. He brought forth a bill to the House so he could receive $20,000 for the performance of one of the most daring feats of the rebellion. It wasn't the first time he'd brought this measure before the committee, but this time they did reimburse him $5,000 in addition to the $2,000 he got before. So probably still not the... The fair amount, but but more. Uh, 15 years later, okay, now jumping ahead after he's retired from the government, February 23rd, 1915, right? He, uh, he passes away in his home at the age of 75 from diabetes-related complications and malaria, right? Uh, after a quiet final couple of years in his hometown, running his businesses, spending time with his family, uh, you know, and having to deal with Jim Crow bullshit. The item of Sumner newspaper wrote General Robert Smalls, the Bob Smalls of radical fame, one of the most notorious figures of the black regime, which was overthrown by the Hampton Revolution of 1876, died at his home here Tuesday, the 23rd. Uh, Smalls, as I mentioned earlier, buried behind a bust at the Tabernacle Baptist Church Cemetery. And it seems uh, despite all the bullshit he lived through, he died a, a happy man. I hope he did. He did a whole hell of a lot during his life and he never seemed to let the bastards grind him down. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Robert motherfucking Smalls. What a life lived, right? Hope I uh, did some of it, uh, his story justice. So many accomplishments, so much spirit. Born in the slave quarters of a home in Beaufort, South Carolina. Never knew his father, but likely probably raised by uh, the man in a way uh, that was his father, also enslaved by that man. He lived the first third of his life as an enslaved man. He and his mother worked inside the McKee family home. 
Lydia made sure to expose her son to the true horrors of slavery, which made Robert rebellious, lit a fire in him to fight for what was right, but never went out. He then, uh, you know, knew he wanted to fight against the unjust institution of slavery. As a teenager, Robert worked on the Charleston docks, where he learned how to manage a ship, how to sail along the South Carolina coast. Age of 17, he got married to Hannah Jones. Now wanted nothing more than to buy his family's freedom, but it wasn't possible due to his low salary and the terrible unjust times he lived in. When the Civil War started in 1861, Robert sent to work on the planner, Confederate supply ship, and he figured out a new path to freedom. He worked on the planner for almost a year when he got the idea to steal the ship and sail to the Union blockade, which would rescue him and his family and release them from the chains of racial bondage. Robert trusted entrusted his plan to a small crew of other enslaved men and three enslaved friends. And together, these men planned an escape that seemed impossible. And the men didn't back out, or the ones that didn't back out, you know, that the last moment they carried out that plan. Under the cover of darkness, Robert impersonated the ship's captain, sailed through two Confederate forts, passed numerous other Confederates. Over the previous months, he'd memorized all the proper signals to make it seem like he was just on a routine mission. And now he and his family escaped unharmed. Robert proceeded to serve then in the Union Navy for the remainder of the war and recruit thousands of black soldiers to help the North win. Also fought for the Union as the first black ship captain. After the war, Robert participated in reconstruction of the South by opening a school, store, serving in local politics. Then he got back to fighting, you know, the worst ways of the South by participating in the South Carolina State Legislature and the U.S. House of Representatives. Smalls had power and influence, represented hope for black members of the Republican Party. His main accomplishments were fighting for equal voting rights and anti-discrimination laws. Robert faced racism, jail, threats from hate groups, constant political attacks from white Democrats during his long tenure in politics. Never let any of that scare him away. He was determined to serve his community no matter who threatened him with what. He finally retired from his position as Buford Customs Collector in 1913, retiring from public service and uh, at the age of 73 and then dying two years later. 1915, in the same home he was born in as an enslaved person, in the home he had then, uh, you know, had to take a white man to the, to the Supreme Court to keep. Robert Smalls was and still is an inspiration for so many. He valued hard work and determination, never gave up, never stopped fighting, a symbol of success during a time when the majority of people in the country he lived in, the country he'd fought for, were so totally against a black man succeeding. He gave hope to thousands of people in the South that despite whatever obstacles they faced, and there were many, they could still change their lives for the better. And now he gives hope to me and maybe to you. What inspiration are you going to draw from him? I feel a little silly when I think about what I'm taking from him. You know, I privately uh, bitch quite a bit uh, about how much harder uh, it was to do stand-up and create content the past few years in a culture that, had, you know, increasingly became polarized and easily triggered, so easily offended. I bitched about being worried about having a sizable chunk of the uh, audience here turn on me, seeing all this crumble turn to dust because maybe I refused to pick the far right or the far left stance on this or that. I was worried that by not appearing to support BLM in the way some wanted or by not appearing to support law enforcement in some way wanted or in the way some wanted, by not giving blank, generalized, uh, you know, support to conservatives or liberals, uh, that this uh, would all be over. And you know what? Uh, boo fucking who? If that does happen. Robert Smalls fought for what he believed in, expressed what he believed in, even if that meant it would enrage someone to the point of killing him, he lost shit all the time and then just fucking came back. And I'm worried that my, uh, that me expressing my thought out opinions, you know, might cause people to stop listening. How, how weak actually. I'm, di I'm disappointed in myself when I think about it that way. If this did all go away, and I'm not worried about that anymore, just so you know, I can be a little prone to paranoia. But if it did, in the grand scheme of things, well, so what? It was a great ride and I'll uh, always be grateful. Would I be sad? Sure. But you know, you got to soldier on. Uh, would it be comparable to Robert Smalls trying to win an election when white supremacists were terrorizing voters at the booths? Fuck no. 
You know, would it, would it be comparable to worrying about the, the KKK might lynch you or someone you love every day? Uh, you know, do the divisiveness and stress of these times compare in any way to what many Americans went through for most of this nation's history? Nope. I don't worry about some sadistic motherfucker legally whipping me or one of my kids or my wife, you know, because we got the wrong skin killer, color to be out uh, too late. I don't worry about someone literally uh, selling my wife to some other slave owner who might uh, then rape her and I can't protect her. Are things more culturally tense right now than they were pre-pandemic? Yeah. Are the times still much better than they've been for the majority of America's history? The majority of the world's history? Oh my God, yeah. Thank you, Robert Smalls, for a little perspective reminder. Thanks for the admirable life you led, the example you set, the tenacity and fucking grit you displayed. And uh, thank you to all the historians who helped document his remarkable life so that his legacy will never be forgotten. He kept on trucking. Right? I guess we should all do the same. What's what's the alternative to just uh, soldiering on? Hail Robert motherfucking Smalls. All right, so that's his story. Now, before today's top five takeaways, I'd like to review uh, what 2021 was like uh, for me and for Bad Magic here in some ways. So many thoughts. Uh, Remember when I had such high hopes for 2021 at the end of last year? (laughs) And then 2020 started off with a capital riot? Weirdest storming of a national capital ever, I think. A fucking QAnon shaman? What? So surreal. I did not see that coming, but maybe I should have. Did not see uh, the cultural divisiveness deepening here in 2021. Probably should have seen that too, though. After the craziness of 2020, I think I let emotional optimism convince me that everything was just going to magically turn around when the calendar flipped over to the next year, uh, that we were like, almost like we were like owed it somehow, which is such nonsense, uh, wishful thinking to say the least. Why have things gone in the direction they've gone in 2021? Well, people kept dying from COVID for starters and the large media conglomerates and politicians trying to figure out how to spin all the turmoil into their advantage has not helped. I talked about how overly negative the media can be a few years ago in a TEDx talk, uh, right? If it bleeds, it leads. Lately, uh, it feels worse and it feels like there's more of like a twist on it. Like if it scares, you'll care. Scared of COVID-19? Okay, well, let me pound your fucking brain day after day after day with nonstop articles and studies and social media posts where the information is presented in the most terrifying, most biased way possible or just straight up false. Let me hit you with uh, huge numbers of cases when that's the scariest. Maybe leave out dropping mortality rates, if that doesn't seem as scary. Let me focus on how transmissible the new variant is, but not on how it's less lethal, because that's not negative. Let me focus on how vaccinated people are still dying and act shocked, even though that was always going to be the case, right? See exhibit flu shot every fucking season. Let uh, let me not focus on new promising, extremely uh, effective antiviral treatment regimens. Fear, 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 right? Stay afraid. Keep reading, keep watching, keep clicking to feed the ad dollar-based, you know, algorithm. Afraid that the liberals now in charge want us to live in some type of Orwellian nightmare will let me frame mandates not as public health issues, but as anti-freedom, totalitarian control, pro-socialism pieces. Let me uh, make you think that any form of socialism will lead to communism. Let me make you believe that wearing a mask or getting a shot makes you a fucking coward, a sheep, unpatriotic, weak, etc. So much manipulation. So of course there's going to be so much angst. So much shit said this year for political optics and party strategy and to help big media make more ad dollars. And thinking about all this at the end of the year puts me in a mindset of patience and grace, actually. Not being sarcastic. It puts me in a mindset of working on trying to become more understanding. I wrote a lot of new stand-up this fall. uh, Also scrapped a lot of it, despite uh, getting laughs and applause because on further reflection, it didn't feel fair. I've been thinking about what's fair more. Uh, lately, I went hard on those not wanting to get, you know, vaccinated for a while. But can you really blame anyone for being skeptical of Big Pharma right now? 
see exhibit Purdue and the opioid epidemic. It was in a pharmaceutical company's interest, right, to push drugs on people even when it was very dangerous to do so so they can make billions and billions of dollars. And now other big pharma companies making billions and billions of dollars, something else, and we're supposed to just inherently trust them now. How much had big pharma made this year thanks to selling vaccines? I mean, check this out. Back in uh, July, Pfizer projected its COVID-19 vaccine to bring them roughly $34 billion in revenue this year, putting that uh, them on course to become one of the best-selling or, you know, that their vaccine on course become one of the best-selling medicines of all time, over $1,000 a second, almost $64,000 a minute, over $91 million a day. That's a lot of fucking money. Am I saying the vaccine doesn't work? No, I'm not saying that. Please don't hear that. I'm just saying that it's not so crazy to be concerned when there's so much financial incentive to tell everyone something's harmless, even if maybe it's not. And this is coming from somebody who got the Pfizer shot. So again, please don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that yelling at people who are scared and telling them they're stupid for being concerned, where does that get anyone? And is that fair? And I'm guilty of doing that myself a fair amount. And as a lowly meat sack, I'm sure I'll do it more going forward. But what I'm trying to learn from 2021 is to see the other side of an argument and to act with more grace and humility when people present arguments and perspectives that I don't uh, understand necessarily or I think are wrong. And again, uh, you know, both political parties and the media, they've done such a terrible job with that. You know, just attacking each other all the time, just spinning shit and making people worked up all the time. You want to see some really terrible spin, a shocking amount of spin, really look into the Rittenhouse trial. See how a narrative of white supremacy was 100% fabricated by journalists pushing an extremely biased agenda. And to what end? To piss people off, to outrage people, right? Even if the outrage uh, and the anger is based mostly in lies, because if you're truly outraged, you know, uh, you'll fucking read more articles. You'll, you'll click more. You'll watch more shows. You'll give them more ad money. And if you're outraged right now for me just even saying that, well, then they fucking got you. Please do a true deep dive before sending me any emails. It's, there's some shocking shit. And, and it's one of many examples. So much spin. So many people playing to what they think their tribe's talking points are supposed to be instead of actually stopping, thinking for themselves, looking at the other side of the argument, evaluating things fairly, right? What's that saying? Never let truth get in the way of a good story. There's so much of that going on right now. So of course, conspiracy culture continues to rise, right? We're being actively manipulated, not by lizard people or satanic Illuminati forces, Chan and wearing fucking robes and shit. That's the cartoon version. That's the dumbed down, distracted with some silly bullshit version. We're being manipulated by companies beholden to Wall Street and politicians beholden to those companies to get the money they need to campaign and keep their careers going. Money, it's almost always money. You know, you think some media outlet who knows that 90% of their audience is, say, liberal is going to risk losing a big chunk of that audience to report on a story that doesn't line up with recent party and woke talking points? No, there's too much fucking money at stake. And same for, you know, a media outlet on the right. Most, in my opinion, don't really tell stories objectively. It's not in their financial interest. White police officer saves black lives in domestic disturbance situation. Pass, right? Doesn't fit the narrative for a lot of media companies. White police officer shoots and kills young unarmed black man. Let's run that story nonstop for six months, right? Why? To promote social justice or to sell more ads, to get people angrier. Money, almost always money. Stay pissed, stay scared, keep fucking clicking. One of the many examples of how shit is so continually spun. Now, does that mean that I think that every politician's corrupt and every publicly traded corporation and big media conglomerate, they're all morally bankrupt? No. It just means that the system is flawed, as all systems are, and it is good to be aware of those flaws, right? So we cannot be as manipulated by them and hopefully help correct them. Wish I had some answers on how to do that, right? Uh, 
take more than a few hours of this jackass doing some year-end reflection to come up with those solutions. Uh, I do know part of the answer lies in, uh, you know, needing more politicians to have the fucking balls or lady balls to step across party lines, stand up for what they actually believe instead of just treating legislature like they're, uh, you know, a member of some fucking college sports team in a rivalry. I know that more people being willing to hear a different point of view, to reach their hand across the aisle, to break bread, listen, not just fucking yell is an important piece of the puzzle, right? Yelling at the other side, talking shit online doesn't help. Think of our nation and culture as a marriage, right? Divorce is civil war. Does anyone really want that? I don't. And if the goal then is to work together, would any marriage counselor recommend a couple standing across the room from one another and just fucking screaming insults at one another? You're fucking stupid, weak, racist, foolish, corrupt, you motherfucker. No, that, no. That's like the last thing you're supposed to do. That takes an incredibly divisive situation and just uh, makes it worse. It causes each side to entrench themselves further in their disagreements. It's not going to ever fix shit. Any relationship counselor would tell you that. So we need to move, uh, any fucking decent one. I don't know what kind of maniac wouldn't. Uh, so we need to move away from that. And I think in time we will. Think about how broken the system was when Robert Smalls was inside of it. Think how far it's come since then. He dealt with so much divisiveness, ignorance, you know, irrational anger, kept people spouting lies, kept talking to people, kept working with people, people that he didn't agree with, right? Kept sitting on political committees with people. He, there's no way he could have agreed with them because these were people who often hated him for the color of his skin. And he didn't let that stop him from trying to work shit out, trying to push ahead. A lot of the shit, uh, you know, he tried to pass, didn't get passed, but he kept trying and he won some small victories and his battles inspired others in the future to keep fighting and then they would win larger battles. His efforts never in vain. So that's kind of where my head is at culturally at this moment. It's why I'm working on a new hour of stand-up where I'm not going to pull punches, but I really want to make sure more than ever that the punches seem justified. That's the goal. To not say inflammatory shit that just needlessly makes this shit storm of divisiveness worse. Right? I don't wanna, I don't wanna be a part of that. And that's what I want to do with uh, you know, more of with Time Suck in 2022. The the primary goal, always to be entertaining, to make learning something new actually fun. Second, I want to promote seeing shit from different uh, perspectives when that seems reasonable. You know, will that mean I'll, I'll make fun of some stuff less? No. <laughs> uh, it just means I'll try and be fair and explain why I'm making fun of something. I've always tried to do that here, actually, you know? Haven't always accomplished it, but I do try. Uh, just uh, this top of mind stuff right now. All that being said, uh, thank you for letting us have such a good year. I actually had a really good year in so many ways, and I am so grateful. Gratitude been on my mind a lot, too. Uh, having the kids at home from school still early this year, you know, I felt bad for them, not getting as much time with their friends as normal, but also I was like, well, it is what it is. What's the positive part of this? And the positive part is how much extra family time I got, and I fucking loved it. Selfishly, I was pretty fucking sad. When, uh, you know, the, where they go to school in uh, in Washington kicked up again and they went back in, uh, in the fall semester. I mean, I was happy for them, but I was bummed for me. I, I love that time. Uh, I didn't start touring again until uh, August. So the first seven and a half months this year, I got so much family time. Anyone else feel weirdly grateful, right, for the pandemic in that respect? Uh, I learned that I really don't need to travel all the time. I'm, I'm happy doing a lot of stuff from home. But then when I did start to travel again, when I started to tour with stand-up, it was a fun bonus. It wasn't something I, I needed to do anymore, right? It was like a privilege, not a, not a chore that it used to feel like sometimes. Not that I ever, you know, hated stand-up, but, you know, just traveling more than I wanted to many years. Uh, you all almost got me to quit doing stand-up this year. Thought about hanging it up at one point, not because I hated it, but doing several podcasts. It just kept me busy and kept me fulfilled. Um, you know, thanks to your support, thanks to you, you listening and some of you subscribing on Patreon, buying merch, et cetera. I didn't need to do stand-up for the money anymore. So I didn't. I went back on the, on the road for fun primarily. 
And I'm so glad I did. After a year and a half refresh, I love stand-up more than ever. Uh, so glad for the the pause. You know, I didn't didn't know that I really needed. Uh, I'm so hungry to try and get better, funnier, maybe insightful even, maybe uh, more entertaining, hopefully, darker possibly, maybe more darkness with more heart. That combo, is that possible? I think so, I'm trying. So grateful for all that. Um, yeah, life is, uh, you know, always hard for some, but the past two years reminded me more than normal, just how hard life has been. Uh, for a lot of people, a lot harder than normal. This uh, this year for our annual Bad Magic Giving Tree, where we buy Christmas presents for the children and families in need, so much more need than there was last year. You know, three times the emails from families asking for holiday assistance, they came in, even though I think we promoted it less. Lindsay went through all those emails so many times, you know, I saw her in tears. That's something else I think about now. When I, when I see somebody angry or worked up or posting something that I don't agree with, pushing some, you know, narrative that I'm like, what are you doing? I think maybe it's, you know, ignorant or hateful. I, I do try now to stop and think like, what's going on in their lives? You know, maybe 2021 fucked them so hard. Maybe they lost loved ones. Maybe they lost their job, their house, their health. I don't know where they're coming from. People coming from a lot of different areas of pain lately. And uh, I'm trying to pause more before just ripping their fucking heads off. Circling back to the giving tree, one of the things I'm most proud of for 2021 uh, we did here is uh, how much we were able to give back thanks to patron donations of Time Suck, Scared to Death listeners, and to personal donations on top of that from you listeners. You know, if you don't know, we give 20% of our subscription money to charity every month. And then, you know, more than 20% in December, when we're giving back to fans, we're able to raise $49,000 for the giving tree. It was amazing. In 2021, in total, we raised $202,700. I mean, holy shit. Uh, all time, we're up to almost $350,000 now. Uh, besides the giving tree in 2021, we donated to IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan, Veterans of America, RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network, uh, the American Nurses Foundation, the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, Support Surfside, Trinity Stables in Georgia, Vintage Pet Rescue, the Ocular Melanoma Foundation, the St. Bernard Project, the USC Shoah Foundation, No Kid Hungry, and the Riggins Idaho EMTs. That last one made me feel especially grateful. And and thank you uh, for spreading the suck this past year. Holy shit. Uh, Time Sucks monthly downloads went from 2 million a month at the end of 2020 to 2.5 million a month at the end of this year. Half a million extra listens a month. That's a lot. Scared to death downloads went from around a million a month to 1.4 million a month year to year. That's huge. Is We Dumb listens went from four or five people a month to 10 to 15 people a month. JK, JK, just teasing, just teasing, uh, Joe. Who's not here? Zach's running the show right now. So I felt uh, more comfortable even making that joke. <laughs> no, they went from around $250,000 a month or $250,000, uh, 250,000 downloads a month to uh, 470,000 a month. Uh, overall up to almost 4.5 million total downloads a month for Bad Magic. Maybe we'll get to 5 million, 2022, maybe more. I hope so. It's fun. And if not, still grateful. Uh, next year, the goal is not going to be adding anything new to the mix other than the big gathering in August, which we didn't get to do this year, uh, not in person, again, because of the pandemic. Uh, still don't have more details to announce that right now other than plenty behind the scenes is underway, going well. Lindsay's running that. Very excited for it. Other than the big gathering, 2022 is going to be about refining what we already have, some websites, some app updates, fixing this, polishing that, getting enough rest and family time to create more balance in my life is a huge goal of mine this next year because I want to stay passionate about what I'm doing here. And to do that, I got to do less stuff here. Uh, spend less time creating content. Be more rested and excited when I am recording, am creating. Uh, not that I wasn't excited this past year. Just realized that, you know, year after year of really, really late nights, I was up to four in the morning last night trying to figure this out. Not good to do perpetually. 
The goal should be to work hard for a while so you don't have to work hard forever, right? Uh, trying real hard right now to, you know, figure out how to make these shows as good or better in less hours of prep each week. And if I can't do that, maybe in 2023, I'll have to pull back on some content so that the stuff that remains will be better. Uh, figuring a lot of this shit out as I go, as we all, all are here. So what were the episodes and jokes that resonated with you the most in 2021? I got the analytics and the emails to back all this up. Uh, last year's recap with Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. Got some great feedback. So many emails about Frankel's story, lighting fires, inspiring people, giving people the motivation to go chase their dreams. You meet Zach's uh, sending so much good stuff. Nimrod was so pleased. Then the Israel Keys episode in January, suck 2020 or 228, Jesus Christ, 228. Oh, that's where my dad was first revealed to be, uh, you know, maybe a serial killer. Uh, where is he right now? I don't know. Uh, you might want to double uh, check your door, make sure it's locked. Uh, can't believe that joke is less than a year old. Feels like that's always been part of the, uh, the mythology here in Time Suck. Then Dad Watch showed up in uh, Suck 234, right? The Elon School Suck. Dad Watch, if you forgot, a 5013C nonprofit dedicated to solving dad related crimes. Dads are disappearing where all the corpses hide. That's what Dad Watch stands for. Most murders, I mean, are committed by dads. Always important to think about, you know, where's your dad now? You know, where was your dad when some major crimes have occurred? Uh, right before Dad Watch dropped, uh, there was the Armenian Genocide Suck. Got so many emails over that one. So many listeners' families touched in the worst of ways by that terrible tragedy. So many people grateful for that tragedy being given more exposure, right? That uh, uh, a tragedy that the Turkish government, you know, works hard to, you know, keep hidden to this day. Another episode that seemed to resonate with so many of you was episode 235, Ward Motherfucking Hall, Papa Ward. I, I didn't think that was going to get nearly amount, the amount of downloads it did. Uh, you know, such a great man. So grateful you let me honor his life uh, in that in that way. Learned so much about the area I grew up in. That was very special to me. Uh, then there was episode 237, Robert Picton, the pig farmer killer. Uh, the debut of, I would, I would have to say, the least favorite character thus far. <laughs> in the suck first. Mama Picton, not a hit with many. Papa Willie, Papa Willie, Grandmama's house boots, eh? Brush for the front part for you kid more of those pigs, Papa Willie. Uh, most divisive episode of the year, probably 241, QAnon and Antifa. I didn't think it was going to be for some reason. A uh, lot of feedback about how, yes, go hard on Q, but also should have went harder on Antifa. A lot of people very pissed off, which uh, surprised me. You know, Antifa, those slippery bastards, if only they would have left an equally obvious trail of idiocy. Episode that uh, most people nerded out over, uh, that had to have been H.P. Lovecraft and Cthulhu. June 21st, Suck 249. That episode launched uh, the surprise, at least to me, uh, hit joke by far of 2021. Stop sucking your mama's dick, you base controlling mouth breather. Get out there and do something with your life. Drink Whipple. Drowning in a sea of despair, stuck in the mud of paralyzing depression. Well, get the fuck over it. Wash your feelings down with some Whipple. Got a bad case of the Mondays? Fuck you! Fuck your family! Whipple! Knock one back and throw yourself off a cliff, you piece of shit! Whipple! New kicking cranberry flavor now available. So that was fun. That was fun to do initially, but I was like, I don't know how this is gonna go. Uh, all because Love, uh, Lovecraft's uh, grandfather, a prominent industrialist, just happened to be named Whipple Van Buren Phillips. Uh, most shocking episode. Uh, I think that's gotta be Fred and Rose West. Holy shit. So dark, so much incest, so much, so much tag team torture and murder. Uh, remember uh, the creepy ice cream truck driver? Hey there, little nippers. What are you having today? Want some soft serve? You like it hard? Ha, you like it hard, don't you? All the little nippers like it hard. That's what my dad taught me. Who wants an ice cream sandwich? Who wants a Fred West sandwich? 
You'll be the meat, you will. Come on, let's have some fun. Not a good summer day if you don't get pregnant. So that was uh, fucking creepy. Uh, then there was episode 254, uh, Jody Arias. So much poophole loophole That's when loophole became synonymous with sodomy here in the Suckverse. That's, that's when we learned about the Provo, at least I did, I learned about the Provo float, also known as soaking, parking, marinating. The Provo float, if you forgot, is when a dude sticks his penis inside a vagina, but doesn't move it or come. No thrusting, no grinding, no climax. Just pop it, just pop it and hold it still. Pop it in there. Why do that? Because then it doesn't count. Because that's the crazy rules that God makes, is that you can put it in, just don't move it, and then it's not sex. Uh, Robert Williams, Suck 260, that was a surprise hit. At least uh, I was surprised. Uh, downloaded very well for a topic that was not dark. So many good messages regarding the, uh, the joy that Williams brought to many during his life and afterwards. Uh, a lot of messages about the, the sympathy for his struggle with Louis body dementia and empathy. Many people knowing someone struggling with that curse in their own families. Uh, another surprise, maybe the biggest one to me, Suck 262, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, roughly 350,000 downloads so far and counting. Most downloaded episode so far. More than any serial killer episode. Did not see that coming. So many listeners writing in with sad tales centered around primarily, uh, you know, the, the two witness rule. So much sexual abuse covered up and I have to imagine continues to be covered up. That was the most shocking episode of the year for me overall. Uh, you know, not, not as dark in some ways, obviously, as Fred and Rhodes West, but just, uh, yeah, just uh, maybe most surprising, I guess. Truly just had no idea what can of worms I was opening there. Speaking of not knowing what I was getting into, episode 265, the Dolphin Point Experiment. What the fuck? Crazy interspecies romance of Margaret and Peter. Sometimes she will be on her back in the bottom. Sometimes he will be underneath her. The positions are manifold. They meet belly to belly, with heads out of the water, while standing on their tails. He wraps himself around her, holding his flukes in his own mouth. He can maintain an erection for around 20 minutes. Uh, what did we learn about dolphins in that episode? Uh, a, they're super horny. B, they get so sad when you break up with them. Uh, next big topic that we got a lot of uh, emails off of was the opioid suck. Suck 272. So many emails of those affected by opioid addiction. You know, we learned about Joe uh, Paisy. His, uh, he was open about his struggles with opioid addiction. Uh, we learned how insanely dangerous fentanyl specifically is. That's why uh, I should not do alley coke with strangers anymore. You shouldn't. Uh, also learned that not only do many of you like the Whipple commercials, you also like the Whipple Chill commercials. Whipple's new low energy cocktail. Hey there. Want to get low? With one of three new flavors of uh, Whipple Chill, Cherry Cola Codeine, Mint Chocolate Morphine, Blackberry Black Tar Heroin. Stop worrying so much about everything, about anything. Just be, just float on down here with me. So peaceful with a whipple. Cheer. So there was that. There was the Menendez brothers. Remember those two murderers? And shrewd businessmen so good at business. Too bad Menendez uh, Investment Enterprises isn't still around. You could drain your retirement accounts. Give it all to Lyle to invest in fucking chicken wings or something. Uh, then earlier this month, uh, two more popular, you know, uh, topics like uh, 273 and the Hell's Angels. Outlaw MC Life. 
Got some very interesting messages from that one. Uh, that episode currently leading the race of which topic may get me killed or have my ass kicked at least. I uh, had to stop engaging with a few people in DMs before I ended up writing a check that my ass can definitely not cash. Then just a few weeks ago, the Ken and Barbie killers, finally. Maybe that was the most fun in a weird way because I finally got a chance to show off my top-notch rap skills. So inspired by Deadly Innocence's smooth flow. Mm-hmm. Hope you had an entertaining year. Hope you enjoyed what we do here. Hope you see that I'm just trying to see clear. Not let my vision be clouded with fear. Just want to spread some cheer. Level up my content creator skills to the next tier. Grateful for the time you spent with me in 2021. Gonna do my motherfucking best to make 2022 another fun one. What new jocks await? <laughs> What new dark jokes await is what I meant to say. My mush mouth got in the way. Will I still bitch about the blessing of having too much fun stuff on my plate? Will I say some shit to rile you way the fuck up as you wait for the next verse? Yup, 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 yup. Will I share some shit to bring your spirits up, up, yup, yup, yup? Thanks, you motherfucking bad magicians. I know I'm the worst rapper alive. Thank God you like this podcast. It's been a wonderful ride. Thanks for growing up, uh, you know, with me to this uh, crazy ass show. And now, to the time suck top five takeaways. Time for us to glide. Gotta find the right button. I think it's on this other fucking screen. There it is. Maybe I should push it. Here we go. Time suck top five takeaways. I know some of you think that uh, it's uh, entertaining for me to rap like that, but I bet if you were in an interrogation room and I freestyle rapped for, let's say, 10 plus hours, you'd fucking, you'd tell every secret, right? Just to, just to have it stop. Uh, number one, refocusing on Robert Smalls now. Robert was born in the slave quarters of plantation owner Henry Sugarbridge McKee's home in Beaufort, South Carolina. After the Civil War, Robert purchased his former enslaver's home for himself and his family. What a win. What a triumphant moment. Robert died in that same house in 1915 at the age of 75. Number two, at the age of 22, Robert Smalls and a crew of enslaved men stole a Confederate supply ship, the Planter, from Charleston Harbor. He took 17 passengers with him, including his wife and children. The mission seemed impossible. They had countless obstacles, but they fucking did it. It was get to the Union blockade or die trying, and they did not die. And then Robert's daring escape made headlines all over the country. He became a national hero and a Union Navy captain. Number three, Robert Smalls served in politics for most of his adult life, first in the state legislature, then in the House of Representatives. He faced many election challenges, internal battles with Democrats, racism and threats from hate groups, but he never backed down and even challenged several elections himself despite the potential for violent backlash. Robert continually advocated for voting rights and anti-discrimination laws while he was one of the uh, few black men in national positions of power at the time. He survived becoming a symbol of standing up against white supremacy. Uh, number four, Robert Smalls, as uh, well known for his brave, or excuse me, Robert Smalls was well known for his bravery and determination. During the 1863 attack at Folly Island Creek, Robert took over the ship when the original captain fled below deck, and then he piloted the ship to safety. His bravery in the war got him promoted to captain, a rank no black man had ever held before. And number five, new info: When Robert Smalls and his crew stole the planter, the officers who were supposed to be on duty 
and the ship had a lot of explaining to do. Uh, the officers in charge of the planner were arrested, court-martialed for negligence and disobedience to a general order. Relea and Hancock eventually released the blame placed on Ferguson, owner of the ship. Can't seem to find out exactly how he was punished, but Captain Relea, that guy whose hat Small stole to help impersonate him, he was lost at sea between Charleston and Nassau in 1864. And that is all for the takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Uh, Robert Smalls, the 2021 recap. Have been sucked. Thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team for all their help in making Time Suck this past year. Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley, Olivia Lee for the uh, initial research this week. Big congrats to Olivia for just graduating from Clemson. Woohoo! Go Tigers! Uh, thanks to Bit Elixir for keeping the Time Suck app running smooth. Logan, the art warlock, Keith, our creative director, creating the uh, merch. BadMagicMerch.com, running the socials with Liz, the Enchantress Hernandez, who runs the Cult of the Curious Facebook 2 private Facebook page with her wonderful all seeing eyes moderators. Uh, thanks to Zach, the script keeper, for sitting in the producer's chair this week while Joe's out of town. Recorded this one, a couple secret sucks, a couple scared to death. He's been a recording machine on top of his uh, trivia research and other duties this week. And thanks to Beefsteak and the Mod Squad, keeping all the meat sacks happy over on Discord. Uh, kicking off 2022 now with some sex. Fuck yeah, bro. Let's talk about next week's episode. Hey, Lucifina. The Patreon Space Lizards uh, voted in the topic of prostitution in the sex industry. Uh, sometimes called sex work, but using the term prostitution specifically because we'll be talking about the act of selling sex for money, an act as old as human civilization itself. Records of prostitution go back to 2400 BCE in Samaria. And prostitution has been, prostitution has been present in every culture since. And it was probably around in some form thousands of years before Samaria. You know, perceptions of prostitution are based on culturally determined values that differ substantially between societies. In some societies, prostitutes have been viewed as members of a recognized and respected profession. In others, they've been shunned, reviled, punished with stoning, imprisonment, even death. Some societies have celebrated prostitution at times, shunned it at other times, uh, or even at the same time. In Europe, during the Middle Ages, church leaders attempted to rehabilitate penitent prostitutes and fund their dowries. Nevertheless, prostitution flourished, and most people seem to think it was necessary to keep the social order. In 1300s Italy, one city declared prostitution indispensable to society. That belief continues to be held in many countries today. Amongst uh, predominantly Muslim countries, Turkey has legalized prostitution, made it subject to a system of health checks for sex workers. I was shocked when uh, researcher Sophie Evans found that out. Uh, in the U.S., more socially liberal than Turkey by far in most ways, prostitution remains illegal, except for a few counties in Nevada. Why is that? Even though prostitution has been around a long time, there are still so many questions around it. Even more so as we've gotten into the digital age. Should it be legal? Should it be regulated? Should it be accessible on the web? Uh, does it hurt those who engage in it? Does it help them both? So much to talk about. So much historical insanity and modern day ethical questions to wrestle with. And that is how we're kicking off 2022 next week here on Time Sucker. And now let's end 2021 completely with uh, this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Uh, Going to start off uh, addressing last week's popcorn debacle. Colton Huckabee, Sweet Lap Appalachian Sack, writes, Hello, Lord Suckington on high. I've been a Time Suck listener for years, and I love what y'all do to keep me learning and always curious. I'm listening to the Appalachian Cryptids episode and just got to the part where you played some audio of Popcorn Sutton talking. You asked what are the odds that Popcorn knows how to make moonshine, and you couldn't have been more spot on. In East Tennessee and the surrounding areas, Popcorn Sutton was a minor celebrity because of how good the moonshine he made was. 
There have been several shows and documentaries made about him. Google his name if you are interested. He lived a very interesting life and always spoke in that deep Appalachian accent. Just thought you might want to know you were spot on when you assumed you, uh, he knew a little bit about some moonshine. Keep up the good work and I'll keep on sucking. Thanks, Colton Huckabee. Uh, P.S. My wife and I actually saw your set at Stand Up Live in Huntsville, Alabama on our honeymoon in March of 2020, right before everything shut down. It was hilarious. Helped soften the blow that our honeymoon cruise was canceled. So thank you for that. P.P.S. Not apologizing for the long message. Well, thank you, Colton. Uh, yeah, man. Don't apologize. Write out what you need to. Uh, so glad you had fun. My last show of 2020. And thanks for the heads up about, uh, about popcorn. You sent in the first popcorn related message alerting me. He was more than just a dude with a funny nickname. He was a legend. I guess popcorn comes from the type of grain he preferred to make his moonshine with. Uh, happy New Year. Happy New Year, dude. Now, another popcorn message from an anonymous Appalachian sucker who writes, Hail Almighty Suckmaster McSucky. Listen to your Appalachian suck. Just wanted to say, you better put some respect on good old Jim Tom and Popcorn Sutton's name. Quick search will show that these two are freaking moonshine legends. Love the podcast, man. Thank you, anonymous Appalachian. Yes, uh, Jim Tom Hedrick, also legendary moonshiner from a bio of his up at sugarlands.com. Jim Tom is a master storyteller and stillmaker. Over the years, he has become one of the most skilled moonshiners in Appalachia, and his original handcrafted spirits were in high demand throughout the South. Today, Jim Tom is passing his lifetime of experience on to a new generation of distillers. Well, hail popcorn and hail Jim Tom. And happy new year. Uh, and now before ending on something softer, uh, another parental murder message from Horror Sharing Anonymous Sack, uh, or a Horror Sharing Anonymous Sack, who writes, Dear Supreme Sucker and the rest of the Suck staff, just wanted to add your probably rapidly growing story collection about people killing both their parents. I knew a kid growing up who at 21 years of age shot both of his parents in the head using a 22 rifle because they wouldn't give him five bucks for gas. He then just put their bodies in the garage and left them there for the day or two before he was caught. Thankfully, Dennis Markoff from Maquan, Wisconsin, now serving 55 to life. I definitely wasn't close to this fucking creep at all. My only real memories of the guy are him showing people his dick in first grade <laughs> and later going to see the fellowship of the ring with a group of kids from a high school class and being caught masturbating in the theater. Probably not exciting enough for the air, but please leave my name out of it if you do read it. Much love to the whole Bad Magic team. Uh, yeah, uh, did he? That was definitely exciting enough. Did he jerk off during the Fellowship of the Ring or did you? I'm thinking he did. Just uh, making sure. Uh, what an odd movie to jerk off to. Maybe I guess the dude likes a sexy elf. I wonder if he's like uh, beating it in prison now to, to pictures of uh, people at like Renaissance fairs he smuggled in or something. Yeah, that message, yeah. Plenty exciting enough to share on air. And yeah, the kid shot his father three times in the back of the head then waited for his mom to arrive home, then shot her in the back of the head as well for five bucks in gas. The fuck? Uh, weird that the kid jerking off to Fellowship of the Ring who whipped his dick out in first grade was mentally unstable. Uh, well, thank you and have a happy new year to you as well. And now uh, one more Appalachian message from Blue Ridge Sack Jordan Tripp who writes, Dear Master Sucker, I'm a native of the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina and a proud Appalachian pronounced the correct way as the internet poll indicated. Just wanted to say I loved hearing you talk about my wild and crazy hillbilly ancestors. I didn't even mind the over-the-top redneck voice because let's be honest, that's a perfect representation of a lot of people I know, including some of my best friends. It was refreshing to hear someone talk about the region as culturally rich and historically relevant. Too often we're treated as a flyover region, grouped all together or thrown in with the rest of the American Southeast. It was great to hear someone acknowledge how huge and diverse of an area Appalachia is. Appalachia has huge cultural, social, and economic importance to the U.S., but too often outsiders resort to dismissing the entire region with horribly overused hillbilly stereotypes. The beginning of this episode made me feel incredibly seen 
uh, as a native Appalachian, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Keep on sucking, Jordan. I love hearing that, Jordan. Yeah, man, we meat sacks are a diverse bunch. Prone to tribal tendencies, of course. We're a herd species, but also unique, right? Endless individuality found within each race and region. Happy New Year. And wrapping things up now with something selfish. Uh, I really do try and get better at all this. And uh, I never just want to just coast and think like, I got this. Uh, I hope I always try and get better. And this was just a nice message of affirmation for me just to, to, to get as I reflect back on this year from Sweet Sack. Melanie Echevarria, who writes, uh, longtime listener in space, those are just going back to some of the early episodes I missed. And I wanted to tell you how much you've evolved over the years. It was never bad, but my God, how you've grown. You found your voice and settled into yourself as Dan Cummins, the man, not the comedian, in such an awesome way. I will intentionally listen to an early episode, then a recent episode, to hear the difference because it's remarkable. You had this raw, intense, self-effacing, genuine new aspect to your earliest episodes. And then as time passes, you add these amazing characters and intros and side bits and recurring sketches that have transformed your podcast into something truly unique and impossible to copy. It has been truly awesome to witness. And I just wanted to let you know that we notice. Keep up the good work. Meet sack numero uno. You know what? Oh, oh no, sorry. I, I, I jumped ahead. You had a little bit more to say. You give the rest of us hope that we uh, too can often find our path. Hail Lucifina, praiseable jangles. Many thanks to the most high Nimrod for leading us to time suck. Peace out. Fucking love you, Melanie. Thank you for taking the time to write and send that. Uh, truly means a lot. If I'm feeling down, I'm beating myself up, you know, feeling like my mouth is too mushy that week. I hope to remember to read your message again. You, you made this maniac feel very good. Uh, peace out to you as well. Peace out to you all uh, and happy new year. Uh, 2021, I hope it brought you, I hope it brought you some, some good stuff and I hope 2022 Brings you more good stuff. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Did it. Made it through another year. Another 52 Monday episodes in the bank. Thanks for letting me uh, get paid to do what I love. Now get the fuck out of here. Spend some time enjoying whatever you uh, have to feel thankful about right now. Reflect on your own journey this year. You beautiful, important, faith in humanity restoring bastards. And keep on sucking. Bad Magic Productions. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.